Hi, I'm Mary Lou Belli. I am one of the directors on Black Lightning and NCIS New Orleans and The Secret of Sulphur Springs, as well as I've directed a show called Legacies, amongst many, many others. And I am so happy to be here and part of Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is on a mysterious cosmic mission. I'm your host, Craig, and I'm here to lead a discussion about the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe release. It feels like there's one about once a week. That's probably because there is. But the latest one's called Eternals, released in the cinema. Joining me for this is my partner in crime, partner in celestial matters, Aaron. Hello. I wondered what you were going to do with that. But, you know, crime? No. What crime do they commit? Property damage? <laughs> property damage, sure. That is a crime. Collateral damage. Extreme property damage, you could describe this film as being, but that could be a spoiler. No. Well, we'll I don't get, know. We'll get into that later. But anyway, hello. Welcome. So Eternals, we've got another Marvel thing. It does feel like they're coming thick and fast at the moment. It's relentless because we've had Shang-Chi which you saw but didn't appear in the podcast for. You were on What If, which was recently released as we record. Just Marvel things all the time, it feels like. So here's another one. So with Eternals, what were your general thoughts? What did you think of this film? Did you enjoy it? Did you have issues? Did you meet somewhere in the middle? Yeah, didn't hate it, but didn't love it. Found it too difficult to really embrace the detail and characters enough to say that was amazing. But equally, I didn't hate it. Didn't come away with any awful points that I thought were terrible. Potentially, I would have just made a few story choices differently, perhaps. I think I would have cut a lot of the explanation histories of the characters jump straight into the middle of the plot and then try to reveal the histories through the character interactions rather than actively spelling them out. I, I understand why they did spell them out because they do want something grand and epic, but the difficulty with an epic is it is long and heavy and involved and is that what we're really wanting from our Marvel shows? Because I don't think stylistically any of the Marvel stuff suits an epic. Say, so I'm not even sure this particular one does. Yeah, um, similar. I enjoyed it. I thought parts of it were great. I thought parts of it needed a bit of work. I had a lot of questions as I was going. And when the logic of the thing you're watching breaks down as you're watching it, that's usually a problem, which we'll definitely get into once we hit spoilers. But I did like it. I think it takes a few big swings and... Potentially the Marvel Cinematic Universe needed something to be a bit riskier than normal because we liked Shang-Chi, but at the same time it was traditional in a lot of ways. It doesn't push things too far. So I think Marvel needs something like this every now and again to ward off anyone saying they're getting stale. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll all work and it'll all work for everybody. And we'll definitely talk about general reaction to it as I've come across as we get on. But... I think this was ambitious and doesn't quite 
live up to the ambition. That's probably the most succinct way I can put it without spoiling everything. You'll have to point out to me what you are labelling as they took some big swings, because I don't know that they did any that I really noticed, actually, as big swings. But maybe I'm thinking of the wrong thing, so point them out as we go. I will do, and it's not anything that's necessarily a big swing in the sense of this is totally unique content. I'm talking about a big swing in the context of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because they don't tend to push the boat out too far very often. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I think there's a definite wheelhouse that the people that make these films understand that these films fit in and they stick to that, which works. It's always said or it's often said that a Marvel film, there's a baseline of quality that you'll get going in. You know that going in, it wouldn't be any worse than, say, three stars. But it might not necessarily reach the heights of classic status or whatever. Whereas DC, they're throwing things into the mix. They're just whatever. They don't seem to care about any kind of cohesion and they take more risks in that way. Whereas Marvel, it's no, no, we know what we're doing. We know how to make something that people will enjoy watching by and large. So we'll stick to that. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think that that style of, yeah, let's hit that baseline every time is good, but sometimes I do wish that things were pushed a bit further. And maybe this is one of those where it could have pushed it a bit further. Maybe they, they all could, to be fair, but we'll try and go into more detail as we go. Mm. Okay, so shall we just go straight to the detail? Will we go uh, yeah. into oh, spoilers? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, now we can speak frankly. So let's just start with some of the characters. Obviously, it's a bit of an ensemble piece, but it's not really... We do have a lead, kind of, in the form of Gemma Chan's Cersei. Her perspective is what we follow throughout the film for the most part. And she's the one that has a journey to go on. They all do in some way or another, or most of them do. But she has the most defined one. It's about her accepting leadership and stepping up and making a choice and deciding whether to allow a system to continue, things like that. So just to start off, what did you think of the Cersei character? Do you think she was an engaging lead? Did you engage with her or did she leave a lot to be desired? I would say that I engaged with the character as portrayed and maybe what she was supposed to be, but I don't know that her decisions that she had to make in the plot and the problem she had to overcome in the plot allowed her to really give me something to really emotionally connect to on any deep level. I didn't feel like, oh, this will be horrible for her, or she's so under threat now, or her very existence is is challenged here. It was pretty much an underconfident person has to suddenly become confident. And I even struggled with it slightly because as a character going around in human life, she wasn't underconfident. She was only underconfident as a leader because actually she's quite, well, been alive for thousands of years, I suppose. So you've got the experience to deal with most human problems. And I feel like I felt that. I felt like I felt a human who knew what she was about. But then she suddenly loses it when she becomes a leader. Now, I totally can understand that because when you get thrown into a new environment and everything that is familiar is taken away from you, that is the rug being pulled out. So I did get that. But then when she's asked to step up as a leader and make some serious decisions, I don't know that I really saw her being challenged in any great way. They have to have a fight at the end and she has to unleash her power. But was there really much of a challenge to her 
unleashing her new power. She suddenly realized she could turn things into marble. Okay. What gave you that awakening that said, and now you can do this? What threat awakened you? What character development awakened you? What really convinced you that you had the power, other than right in the moment, if you don't do this, we're all completely screwed, which is fair pressure. I get that. Was there any particular emotional development there other than in the moment you come through? Yeah, and I think part of the problem with her is you don't get a real sense of her quote-unquote human life. It's just a couple of scenes really at the start. So you see her, she's working at the museum. So she's giving a presentation there. She's about to, and then an earthquake hits. And you see her out on a night out with Dane, who... They share a scene with and they seem to get along quite well. They're discussing moving in together or he is. She's nonplussed by the whole thing. But you don't really get a sense of what she might be giving up by getting swept back up in this whole Eternals business again. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's only a finite amount of time to do these things. But I never invested in her relationship with Dane and her human life because it didn't give me that. And then suddenly it's just, here's the deviance again and here's everything and you're back in this life again and you're going to leave this guy for the rest of the film effectively. And it never quite comes back to that being important. And it should be important because it's supposed to inform her decision to want to save the planet because she's connected with it. She's connected with the people. She's connected with a person. She's built a life for herself. But then there's not a strong sense of that, that, as you say, informs her choice in a big way. But there are really massive transcendent things that do happen to her throughout the plot. So she gets thrust into this leadership position. How many films have we seen about people having to become a leader under difficult circumstances? They were never prepared for it. It just gets thrust on them. Almost a chosen one narrative in a way, because she gets given that sphere that allows her to commune with Arisham, the giant celestial. And it was never expected that she would be the one to do that. Icarus was the one that was expected to take on the mantle if anything ever happened. But then it's her, so she has to internalise that. And then there's that whole thing about learning that her whole life, as she knew it, was a lie. Because it talks about her being on Olympia, which is apparently where the Eternals are from. There's no such thing. They were just robots or beings that are created by the Celestials to do a given job. I don't think they reflect on that too much. And because of the big existential questions there, they could have been asking about what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a person? Can they define their own lives in spite of what they've learned? Those are all there. Those big questions are in the air, but they don't ever really get asked or explored. And if you look at it from the perspective of there's a potentially a, quite a young audience coming into this film, a young audience of fans that have been following the MCU for however long. So this might be the first time they've been presented with questions like that. So they're there to think about, but I think... There needs to be a bit more exploration there and they just don't do it, which is disappointing because it's all there. And I was just always waiting for the, okay, but what does this mean? What does it mean to you? And you don't really get it. There's about four or five points in there. So I'll pick up the last one. I'll come back to one of them in the minute that I've just taken a note on. But the last one is potentially something that is not just Cersei. It's the whole film. There's so much in there which is something we often come to with these film discussions. Was there too much? Because if there is too much, then you cannot go into details at all on anything. Or maybe you can on one or two points. 
and there are a couple that they do into, but generally speaking, the rest of them are just going to have to be lost. So I'm wondering, whereas those are valid questions that you can ask, I wonder if the writers were intending to deal with that at all. Did they say, well, we've kind of dealt with this with Vision and Ultron, and it's in the source material that they're constructed beings, but moving on, because we've done this before. Did it actually get raised as a question asked, or is it just a side possibility? I'm not convinced they even meant to ask that. Maybe they did. Maybe they thought that would just naturally come out. But even if they did, as you say, it's not dealt with at all. It's in the subtext that's the whole, we've been manipulated for our whole lives to think a certain way, to be a certain way, and then... You get that whole, you've been responsible for the deaths of countless civilizations across millions of years and your memories are stored in here, but you don't have access to them. So it's a bit iffy in that respect. And the characters are right to question that. And even a couple of them do. So I've just learned that my whole life is about a lie. And what do I do with that? And well, what do you do with that? Do you answer that question? Nope. Well, that's a very human question as well, though, because your whole life can be a lie as a human. You don't have to be a constructed being in order yeah. to ask that question. So immediately then you've got two questions coming in at once, which brings me back to, do you have too many things to deal with at the same time? Because can you existentially really go into the details of, I've been lied to all my life at the same time as... I'm a constructed being and I've got this massive history that's also something to do with a large-scale murder. And once you start layering point on point on point like that, you're going to forget them, which is something I was almost prepared for when the whole film opened up and I thought, oh, reading, okay, hang on. (laughs) That's them, that's them, and that's them. And because my job involves passing over knowledge like that, I was fully aware that I was already going to forget this within two minutes. If you're trying to do it, then of course you can remember these things because you're actively engaged in trying to remember them. But say you're not. Say you're just going to the cinema and you're eating your popcorn and you're chatting with your friend. Oh, it started. Oh, let's have a look at this. You're probably going to remember a couple of points out of that at most. And if you're lucky, it's one of the two types of being. But you're still potentially, hang on, which one's an eternal and which one's a celestial? Oh, hang on, right, okay. The deviance being more obvious because these are the evil ones, by the way. And, you know, that, that picks out. But if there's too much for you to put into your main plot that you are going to rely on writing at the front. We already know from the 80s that it doesn't generally work. I think that just holds throughout, not even just, we've, we've brought this up through Cersei, but I think it's just throughout the whole film. There is so much that you've got 10 characters. I couldn't remember all of the names of the characters. I just couldn't do it. And part of that is because at least three, if not five of them, have not really that much to do. A couple die. Now they're in the source material, so they have to be there. I get that. But if you've got 10 characters to bring in, especially if you've got to do a gather the team scenario, which they do do. But I was thinking, oh, they're gathering the team. All right, okay. Well, they got, and I was counting them because I knew there were 10 at the start because I'm that anal. I had to count when they first appear. I had right, there's 10 of them. Okay. In the lineup, yeah. They've got up to five. They've got five more to go. God, we're going to be here for days just gathering this team. But as well as that, then how to do all the back plots and all the histories. Oh, well, well, there's just, there's so much. I wasn't trying to hate it. I promise you I wasn't, but I struggled because I think there was too much to deal with. So yeah, Cersei's problem of having too many questions to suddenly answer. And then you layer on top her, how do you become a leader 
that how do you become a leader i think was lost in the rest of it didn't impact me at all because she just had to become the leader and and she did Mm. she learned how to turn stuff to marble go did she actually really give any great commands? Was she a leader in the end? Because I'm, I'm even starting to question that now. What do you remember? Of, did she have to give anybody an order? Did she have to give any news to anybody that they didn't want to hear? Did she have to gather the group when they were running away? In what way did she end up being a leader? I guess she was a leader in the sense that she could commune with the celestial and the others couldn't. That's just the person who can use the phone. That's not a leader. So anything that's more than just an admin role. I'm not sure what actual leadership she does as such, but she is the one that breaks the bad news to them. And then she doesn't even rally them as such because they all make their own choices because you have the bit where Kingo says, I'm not going to get involved in this fight. I'm not going to hurt anybody for my beliefs. I'll see you later. And he leaves and no one tries to stop him. That's a great moment in terms of it's a choice that's valid and it makes sense based on what they've set up about that character. But yeah, you've got this climactic moment in a big superhero movie where one of the characters just isn't there. (laughs) And it's a bit jarring in that way. And it is interesting in the way that it's not everybody just rallying behind this battle cry like you would normally get. It is the, there are different choices at play here, which is good in theory but in practice it's well you've just got someone who's missing for 20 minutes yeah well maybe that's what i was expecting to see from somebody who's trying to become the leader then in quotation marks the The captain america moment the captain america speech moment give a speech or something right your entire team is shattering you've lost some of your numbers you've been emotionally undermined by all of these factors that's just been revealed by your previous leader and the most powerful amongst you has decided to turn bad guy the traditional plot is you're expecting to see her say none of us can do this alone we're all going to come together and by the way this is why i'm the leader because i'm the one who's actually got the skills of empathy and consideration and compassion so what we're going to do is we are going to all stand against Icarus, but I choose not to fight him. I choose just to defend and then ultimately try and persuade him that he's wrong. And so you could go down the heartfelt speech at the end where he's about to win, but she talks him out of it. And you don't even have to get him turned on to your side. You could actually just have him in a moment of indecisiveness and then you betray him. So you don't even have to write a nice plot about it. You just got to have enough that she talks him off the victory stand. But you don't get any of those things. And not that I want it to go to the traditional route, but I think if you're trying to say she has become the leader and you don't have your own unique spin on what it is to be a leader as an eternal, you could have picked some of these tried and tested emotional end points, which would have hit me more than... I can turn stuff to marble now, which was in no way emotionally impactful to me at all. And the problem with them defeating Icarus is, well, I kind of don't really defeat him. And I don't want to see him beaten physically. I don't think that's it. But they don't really overcome him. In the end, he kills himself because he has his own moment. But is that strangely all him even? They don't really impact that way. Maybe I'm underestimating the connection there because I've slightly forgotten that part of the film. But there's a bit of a commentary unto itself, I'm afraid to say. Well, the thing is, when I was watching the film, I've seen it twice, and both times I was dialed into, okay, she's the leader, because they tell you that on a couple of occasions. But it was when you said that, it's like, what does she actually do that's leadership worthy? And 
yeah, kind of nothing. But it's strange. I do like the idea that you've got all these characters that have their own agency and they're able to make their own choices. And one of them makes a very unexpected choice to just leave at mm. a given point. Obviously, Icarus makes the choice to betray them, which is a choice he made, turns out, a while ago. By a while ago, it's a week before the film starts, essentially, or perhaps longer. But it's a choice he made. The rest of them just kind of go along with it for their own reasons, which is, again, fine. But if they were going to throw in the whole, this group of people can't be led in the traditional sense. They do have to decide on their own. Because you had that whole Unimind concept. So it could have been Mm. every one of them has to make a defined choice that connects them to the Unimind in that way. It's not something that can be forced on them. It's not something that proximity dictates. They have to give themselves to it. And by giving themselves to it, they make a given choice. But it doesn't come into that thing. And it probably has a lot to do with the fact there's so many characters. There's not enough time to throw in those choices for everyone. So we'll do one. That's fine. And we'll have Cersei be committed to this. That's fine. And everyone else, they have their own reasons. And I think they did a bit of clever shorthand with some of the characters because as you say we're halfway through the film we're still getting them together but they simplify their characters in the way that what have they been up to the past few thousand years well Ajak she's dead but before that she was just living on her own hiding Gilgamesh looks after Thena again lives an isolated existence Mm. Druig he's controlling these people in the Amazon reasons for reasons that's what he does Fastos he's just got his family that's his motivation and Makari, she's just been hiding in the ship this whole time, reading. That That's was, all she's that been doing. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, very odd. But it's almost that expected and necessary shorthand to get around that fact that do these characters have full lives? Turns out, for the most part, no. They've just been milling about for the past several thousand years, apart from Cersei, who has a life where they don't explain when people she gets close to age beyond the point where they start to notice her not aging. Yeah. She'd only have a few years with Dane before that would happen, really. That's the really difficult thing to do with shows like this. Anything where you have an eternal being, I think, is really hard to convey because I had no sense of these people being eternal. I didn't have any sense of them struggling with as you say, aging out of an entire group of humans. Didn't have any sense of them becoming distant from humans because they're just, well, I can't bond with you. You are not my species. There's so many different ways you could potentially do that, I guess, if you were thinking of how can I make them seem a little less, more, or differently human? But actually, they come across as very human in in the most part. And even the one that's been hiding away, you think, does that have any lasting effect on you that you just hid away for hundreds of years? Not really. Didn't seem any more standoffish, didn't seem to have become different than the others. I know it's probably quite difficult to put it into the plot in such a way as, okay, well, if we make them standoffish, how do we get them talking? So I know it presents challenges, but. If you are going to show me a believably different race of people, I do want you to embrace that challenge and show me your spin on it. What are the Marvel versions of an Eternal? They're going to have to do it again when they give us Blade because they're going to have to go into creatures that live for a long time in that. And that particular type of creature is very dangerous because of everything that's ever been done about it. But nonetheless, you've got to try... 
but I don't think they did. I'm, I'm not sure I saw anything. Cersei is just somebody who is really good with people. And she's had some experience such that when there's an earthquake, she doesn't panic. But you could get that from serving in the army or in a charity abroad where you really have to be able to survive in the worst of places. Maybe it's a matter of being able to speak all languages and you just throw it in as a conceit. But I wanted something and don't think I saw it at all. Coming back to that point I made about what does Cersei do? They mention in dialogue that her and Icarus split up about a century ago. So relatively speaking, she hasn't been on her own for all that long. At least from her perspective, a century is nothing because they've been around on Earth for, what, 7,000 years? Around about that is what's mentioned. So she hasn't been around for all that long, but did she only recently decide to make herself part of society? Is it something that she's always been doing? Has she always been moving on? You get a sense of that with Kingo because he says, I'm my great-grandfather, I'm my grandfather, I'm my father, and I'm me. he's making a dynasty for himself so I guess he just retires from acting before people notice that he should have aged and then comes back as his own progeny later on which yeah that's a way to do it and you've seen that in other things where you have immortal characters as well where they keep rewriting their history as they go which is fine that works but with Cersei doing that you don't know and was she facing up to the fact that this relationship she was having with Dane is finite I guess she was because she didn't want to live with him, although that seemed to be more out of loyalty to Sprite rather than anything else, at least based on the limited perspective you get of that. I got a bit caught out when they were chatting, and I don't know if I heard the wrong thing or not, but there was something one of the characters, I'm sure, said to Cersei that made me think either she dates guys who look a little bit like Icarus and it's a bit unhealthy, or she's picked this new boy out of the crowd because there's something weird and special about him, i.e. implication because of the present she bought him. She knows of his powerful magical background. And I don't know if that was a hint at something deeper and emotional, but I never really followed which one it was and, and what it actually meant because, again, it comes up quickly and it's gone. And if it was supposed to be the former, then that's a rather deep emotional thing that you probably want to be able to overcome in your final moments of the film. But if it's the latter, I guess it could mean that her new boyfriend is just someone she's toying with. It's an emotional thing. It's a bit darker. But maybe you do get a bit that way when you're alive for 7,000 years. And you do struggle to think of humans as any more than a little bit of a plaything. But that wouldn't have fitted her character because she's supposed to be emotional and compassionate. And one of the other things that I found with this particular film, I think, is also expressed here in Cersei, is I didn't get it. I didn't get what was going on in terms of people's powers, emotions, reasons for being there and reasons for what they did. So why was she with her new boyfriend? What were the answers to that question I've raised as to what did she find interesting in in him? don't think it came up, which is... As I say, something that was paralleled, I think, in the rest of the film. Just didn't really understand the why of anything. Yeah, you never get a sense of why she's in that life and why she's chosen that life. Because there isn't time. Even though the main plot doesn't kick in for at least an hour, the plot begins before it can answer any of those questions. You just get to see a couple of scenes, some of which they spend time just discussing other Marvel films. Mm. His reaction to finding out his girlfriend is an immortal being 
that has lived on Earth for thousands of years is to ask her why she didn't fight Thanos. Weirdly, I'm perversely into that because it's the same thing as the first thing we do is call the Avengers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And imagine that you had gone through the blip and it's five years and all the pain that goes with that. Maybe you would have that rather strong emotional reaction. Hey, you're a superhero and you didn't get involved. You know what happened to our planet? I could actually see that being a reasonable thing to ask. Because if you are now used to, right, there's aliens, there's superheroes, there's magic, there's entire planets getting halved in terms of population. Maybe you're all a bit sort of nurse hard now. You've had to go through working in the brutal trauma ward for so long as a nurse that you just are hardened to it. Maybe the entire human race is a bit that now. They're just a bit more inured to the nasty things that can go on in, in life. So I was actually kind of perversely into that. You don't go into shock anymore. Do you know what? I've seen a god. I've seen two on the telly. And it's not just fake gods. They were both real gods. So when you turn up and go, you're a god as well, no, that's fine. You are not the first one I've seen. Seems reasonable. So it's a valid question in terms of what would be going through your head. But I mean, in terms of the emotional fallout of what he's learned about this woman that he wants to live with. And his first question essentially is, why didn't you help with Thanos? I don't buy that they would get there at that point. I think if you're analysing everything completely after the fact you would actually say, really, was that your first question? But when you're in the depths of emotional reactions, you do go to some weird places. It would have bothered me if it had been more than just a one-off question. But I actually quite liked the character, Dane. I thought he was very interesting, and I thought he was a really good foil or supporting character, which I wonder is sometimes hard for actors to be when they're already a big name by themselves. And I know that Kit Harrington is going to get his own, actually, I don't know if it's a film or if it'll be Disney Plus, but whatever, he's getting his own material. So he knows that this is just set up for him. I thought he was really well played as a character. He was one of the highlights for me because they don't get hung up on him being the poor little human that doesn't understand and has to freak out and scream. He is still a bit useless, and he needs to be in the face of a deviant because he's not actually going to be able to do anything at all. He has to be rescued. There's a bus coming at him. Yep, you need rescuing here. There is nothing you can do. So he doesn't become more than he needs to be, more than he could be. But he does come across as reasonably emotionally stable. And sometimes it's nice to see an emotionally stable person on screen. I get a bit fed up with seeing these CW-style teenage freakouts. And it's fine for a teenage show. Because when we were teenagers, we all did go a bit nuts and respond wrongly and incorrectly to everything. But the idea that all adults are a bit teenager-like until they're 40 starts to get a bit annoying to me. So when someone comes along and is emotionally grounded enough to actually process some of this, I am actually really glad to see it. So yeah, one of my top characters from the whole thing, actually, despite not even being in the main roster. I'm glad it didn't go down the obvious route as well of as soon as Icarus turns up, he gets forgotten. Even though he disappears from the plot, for the most part, it's not that she's drawn to Icarus after that point. She's never torn between her choice of these two men in her life, which I really appreciate because I would have found it really 
tiresome if it was this love triangle, even though there was a bit of a love triangle in the sense that Icarus still pined for her, but it wasn't reciprocated, or at least it didn't seem to be. And it has been pointed out to me that a character called Cersei is in a love triangle with two Game of Thrones actors. Love triangles, aren't they always bad? Well, it was more the two Game of Thrones actors. It's the character named Cersei and the two Game of Thrones actors. That's the relevant point. But yes, I always hate love triangles because I just find that they're a cheap source of drama. So I'm glad they didn't do that. Certainly in the traditional way, they did it to an extent because Icarus still pined after Cersei. But as I say, Cersei wasn't keen on getting back with him because she had other priorities and she was still thinking about him. She made sure to call him when she thought the world was ending, stuff like that. And then she goes back to him at the end as well. Yes. In that whole setup, there was actually a reasonably strong emotional relationship that was grounded and realistic and not based on false emotions for the sake of the plot. I was totally up for that. I think that was one of the best parts of the film. Yeah, it was very good in that respect. And as you say, Dane is just there to set up his role as the Black Knight later on, whenever that will happen, whatever that will happen in. Strongly hinted at that he'll probably be in Blade because Mahershala Ali's voice turns up in the post credit scene to tell him something when he's about to grab the sword. Well, yeah, it's just, I know what happens if you embrace the darker side of magic. Let yeah. me just give you a warning about that, by the way. Yeah. Fair enough. He seems like the right person to do that, so fair enough. Yeah, I suppose so. Knowing nothing about this version of Blade, sure, why not? I have to admit, I don't know if they're going down the magical route of vampires or the technological scientific route of vampires, but it's a possibility that somewhere along the lines a vampire is going to come across the magical side of the universe. So, made sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. It's just... I remember our reaction after the film where everyone was like, well, who's that voice? He doesn't say enough for you to latch on to who he is. No. It's one of those, you have to look it up after. Even I had to look it up after. No, but it's a teaser. I don't expect to get detailed analysis in my teaser. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get a bit into plot then. We'll touch on the other characters as they connect to that plot here and there. So it's very mythology driven. I put in the notes, it's very mythology driven, as in the Eternals turned up in whatever year BC and to an extent, have shaped the course of human evolution. That's something that they've done, in some cases accidentally, although in some cases purposefully, which is weird, because it's this non-interference directive that they have, unless the deviants are involved, but then they're shown to be partying with the people that they've saved. So in a way, they're ingraining themselves in the mythology of Earth and the names like Athena and Icarus and Cersei and so on. They're naturally connected to well-known mythology so they're the basis of these myths and it's the idea yeah the myth is sort of truth plus time in a way there's a truth behind it and the idea that ancient superheroes showed up and formed the basis of our mythology it's not a new idea i'm not sure how i feel about it though as such in this film i think i come back to the same as i do for previous arguments which is I wanted to know why. I wanted to mean something. I want it to be important. And you've got so many things there again, it's just not got time to be important. But it felt like this was too big a deal to miss. And you can just, because it's fun. I do understand the argument because it's fun. But given that they've gone so far into explaining how the characters have impacted on humanity... I think you've moved beyond because it's fun and you are actually trying to say something. So I want to know what was it about these people that they impacted all these different parts of humanity? 
And the real brutal thing is, well, we want an ethnically diverse cast. Well, of course you do. That's a good thing. But if you're going to do that and you're going to pick people from all these different areas of the world, then I want to know, well, why are they traveling all the way around the world to defeat deviants? Okay, I get that. The deviants are everywhere. But why are they specifically leaving their impact on all of humanity? They've been told not to interfere. Well, they broke that straight away. They all became gods or mythical figures in the background. So they really weren't that interested in hiding at all. Right, does that have any consequences? Not really. And why these particular figures then? Let's go deeper into that. Why Icarus? What is it about this particular character, who is a stoic guardian type, as you've got there in the notes, what is it about him that flew too close to the sun? How did he in some way lose his innocence and push technology or something too far? How did he go beyond his means at all? I don't think he did. Well, they explained that Sprite made that up and it was all a big laugh. Oh, maybe so. Fair enough. One of them can do that. But give me the rest of them. Athena's reasonably easy because God of War, fair enough. But pick out some of the other ones and tell me how they were more than just, well, because it's fun, because it matches the legends. So some of them don't match the legends at all, as far as I can see. And some of them vaguely match it, but only in a surface level way, not anything particularly deep. Did I miss something, do you reckon, in the choice of the names and the choice of the characters? For the film, I don't mean for the background source material, but for the film. Well, they don't go into it as much as they could. It's just the suggestion that they go and defeat some deviants and then they go party with the locals afterwards or help them with things. And these legends are born and Sprite does the whole storytelling thing. You know, like in Return of the Jedi, funnily enough, it reminded me of that, where it's the, and Athena did this and whatever. So Sprite enjoys telling those stories and that's where the myths form and then they're told over the centuries, across generations and they change and they whatever. And then, yeah, you've got the basis of the myths here. But the whole, you can't interfere or you shouldn't interfere thing versus, well, we did interfere. And that's supposed to, I guess, foster the connection between the Eternals and the human race and encourage them to save them and whatever. But I didn't really get what was going on. It's, we're not supposed to help them advance. But then Fastos is like, I want to give them a steam train. It's like, no, it's too early for that. What about the plough? Give them the plough. They've only had the wheel a thousand years. Let's not push them too far. And it's like, why are you giving them the plough in the first place? And I do have issues with the whole ancient aliens are responsible for all of our development plots. I hate when they crop up in things because it just yeah. says that the human race can't really do anything for itself. Which is interesting because it's actually contrary to the plot almost. Because the whole point, I think, and you had to explain this to me because I missed this completely. But after the film, I said something like, "Why this time?" Surely, if they're this nuts in interfering with all the planets they go to, then this can't be the first time they've done it. So what is it about this time that they have just gone mad for these people on this planet? And you said, oh, well, it's the conceit that the human race is actually really special in the universe. You know, there's something about us that's amazing. Planet Snowflake, yeah. That's how they sort of fallen in love with us as a species. But then you're thinking, well, what on earth did they fall in love with? Because they did everything for us. Did they fall in love with the fact that we worship them more than the other planets? The other planets were like, who are you guys? Clear off. And we were the only ones that actually bowed down and told them they were amazing. Because that's a bit nasty. And what they really want was a bunch of sycophants. Yeah. But that's not the impression. When Ajak is speaking, she's very much, no, think about these humans. What they did was... 
They beat Thanos. They reset the multiverse. You're thinking, did we? We couldn't even invent a plow. How on earth are we going to do that? <laughs> it must have been you guys, really. But this is what I mean. It comes down to why. Why is all this going on? I started to get lost in that because to me, it doesn't feel like it's consistent. It doesn't feel like it's giving me one message. It feels like there's a whole bunch of messages that have been put in a bucket and then just thrown at me through the cinema screen. And as you said earlier, all of these plots are there for you to pick up and analyze, but this film is not going to do that for you. And I think I would have much more valued the whole film if they'd have done some of that and led me in that direction, made some really basic choices right from the start and said, we're going to base the film on this. And all the rest can be flavor that you guys take away and think about afterwards. And maybe there's multi-layers to the film. But we're going to focus on this and give you that story and take you through it. And then, as you say, play out some of these arguments, these discussions, these developments that the characters go through. So it does come back down to, again, you know, why? I mean, why even pick the 10 people that you picked with these powers? Somebody tell me why... Arisham, the judge, says, right, what do we need here to defeat the deviant? We need an AI that's really emotional and compassionate. Do we? I don't think we do. I think uh, Icarus was doing fine. Because they didn't really ever have to get to the point whereby they needed to negotiate with a human species to say, you've got to move out the way because the deviants are coming. So if they'd have given Cersei something to do like that, the deviants are coming, they're going to destroy... Northwest Africa, we've got to persuade everybody to leave. Right, Cersei's now got a job. You have got to do that. You have got to get all the merchants to shut down their businesses, all the kings to give up their land, and yeah, yeah, you've got to do it. And it's going to take some real negotiation to do it. No, I didn't need that. Well, all you need for that is Druig. You've got the main control guy, so yeah, that's yeah, all you need for that. He's not even allowed to use his abilities. <laughs> so why create an AI that can totally dominate the entire planet? If he's not supposed to use it, what the hell is Arishan playing at? And when they don't work on deviance as well, those powers don't work on deviance. <laughs> what's going on? So what Arishan should have done is create 10 versions of Icarus. Send them in. They were doing fine. In fact, more of them would have been better because people were only fighting with their bare hands and their laser eyes, obviously. But that was the plan of Arishan. Kingo as well, to be fair. You know, he can oh, yeah. Use his gun hands. Bit. Yeah. yeah, get a bit of ranged and melee combat in there. Mix it up a bit. Yeah, fair enough. Sometimes you've got to fight at a distance. Sometimes they'll be right on top of you because they come out of the ground. Yeah, all right. I get that. That was good. Keep those two, though. There's where Thena's useful, I guess. She can make weapons. But either way, you're picking out the martial characters here. Everybody else that was interesting because they weren't just a weapon on a stick were kind of pointless. But they must have been chosen for a reason, surely, because they were created by a celestial so now I'm starting to think, right, on earth is this Celestial's game? There must be something going on there. And normally this sort of thing comes up when these people were selected by God. And that's my parallel. My Celestial is to God. If these people are picked by God, then there is a bigger message going on here. You thought it was about fighting, and those three of them are going to keep you alive while the rest of you seven figure out what you're doing. That's the nature of the world. But then the other seven have to come into their own. And God is wise enough to know that the other seven abilities are really going to be needed if you're going to defeat this problem properly. But God is mysterious. It doesn't reveal them to you. You have to work it out yourself. That's kind of part of the point. And when you bring in that religion, 
the story of these 10 characters can really make a lot of sense if they get that development. But they didn't. They weren't asked to develop it. They weren't asked to use their powers. In the end, how does Cersei actually prove that she's useful? By ditching her power and getting a better one, which is to turn massive things into marble. Okay, so not really even showing why you've been selected. You were selected because when you actually figured out how to use your own operating manual, you realize what you can really do. You were picked because of that, but then that says you're a faulty machine. Why couldn't she do this from the start? You're a celestial. You can make whatever you want. You're making an AI. You actively chose to make these and you decided to make an AI that couldn't use its full power. Why? Now, again, if you're God and you're actually saying that this creature Cersei needs to go through some development to come into her own because it's not about the ends at all, it's about the journey of a being's life, then, oh, well, then, then, yeah, that's a good story in that. And when this character goes on to the afterlife, they will have developed. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Makes sense. But it's not. She's a spanner. She's a hammer. She's a drill. She's a weapon. She's a tool created by an AI, which is a horrible realization. But Arisham is just a weirdo. He is just a <laughs> jerk. And I have no idea what's going on now because his plan of birthing all these new galaxies, he's rubbish at it. <laughs> I think that's why we've got to get Galactus in because obviously Galactus needs to sort out the fact that Celestials are a bit rubbish. Yeah. You talk about the God thing. I put in here that one of the themes of this film is confronting God because it is about asking your creator these questions. And like I say, they don't really ask the creator those questions. And I do agree with you, the whole power set, it doesn't make sense. And it's one of those things that when the real story is revealed, the real plan is revealed, it should make sense why those powers are now necessary but it doesn't. It still yeah. doesn't. And Cersei in particular, her power doesn't work on deviance because she can't alter sentient beings. So her power is to turn, I don't know, sticks into weapons that she can throw at them or use on them or whatever, which is what mm. Thena's doing. But she turns energy into weapons, which is much more useful, I suppose. And in, in that way, Icarus has his heat vision. Let's call it his laser eyes. Kingo has his his gun hands, Gilgamesh, he's strong. I guess that's useful. Well, he can fight. I mean, yeah. He pretty much can fight. Makari's fast. Yeah, you can see how that would be useful. Why not just give all those powers to your 10 Icaruses? Is there a reason you can't? Yeah. Is there a finite resource for powers that they can use? It's like, I can only make 10 Eternals this week. And here's my 10 powers. They can have them. some kind of weird character creation video game stuff. Yeah, see, when you put it that way as well, if you're saying that Cersei's job is to turn items into weapons, well, Festos is better at that. Yeah. So why have a weaker version of that same ability? Unless you are a god I mean, fair enough. What could they do? They could actually, in Eternals 2, turn around and say, ah, Arishan the Judge is a rogue celestial or has a greater plan and wanted to get rid of, well, what's this one, Tiamat? They wanted to get rid of Tiamat. So they could actually make it more complex that way. And perhaps what I should be saying is, I've been in this situation before, actually, where I've questioned something and I should have waited to get the knowledge that's coming up in the later story. 
So I suppose what I should be doing, if I'm being nice rather than just being a dick about it and just yelling into the microphone, I should actually be saying when Eternals 2 or Guardians 6 comes out, it will be revealed what Arisham's plan really is, and then it will make sense. There's a different argument there then. Does that fix this film? Well, no, it doesn't, because it could just be something they threw together later to appease you later on. Maybe. But it doesn't mean that in this moment where that film doesn't exist, it doesn't make this any better. It's like, don't worry, we've got a plan for that. All right. But there's no real sense in this film that there's anything else going on beyond what you're told. Because you already have that rug pull. It starts off with the Eternals believe that they are sent to a planet to wipe out all the deviants. Once they've done that, at some point they'll be recalled and they'll get to go home. They don't know when that will be, but they accept it because their god has decreed that. That's fine. Or their boss, I suppose. I don't know if they see Arsham as a god as such. It's more of a management position he's in, I guess. But whatever, whatever relationship he has to the Eternals, they accept that. They accept that that's their lot in life. Their mission is clear out all the deviants so that the human race can thrive. And then eventually you'll get to go home when they're all done. Turns out they're all dead, but you rattle about for thousands of years wondering where that is. And I suppose they could have had a bit more of that. When are we going to get reclaimed? I could have had a life. I chose not to because I could have been picked up tomorrow, but it never happened. There's a conflict there that they don't have the chance to go into. That's Cersei's perhaps reason for not getting close to Dane in the way that she wants to, because she could be scooped up by Arisham tomorrow, for all she knows. So it's all that. The rug pull happens. They find out. Cersei is told, oh yeah, you're actually an enabler for this population control plan, this galactic birthing process. We drop seeds in planets, so Earth is a giant egg that will eventually hatch. The hatching happens when the population reaches a certain point, then when that happens, you get your memories erased and you move on. So why does Arisham even tell her that? Mm. Because the emergence could just happen and then they move on. And again, Mm. yeah, Arisham wants to get rid of Tiamat, which potentially is fine. Why do you want to get rid of a newborn? I don't know. He has his reasons, I suppose. But then Tiamat also joins the Unimind. Remember that in the film? They mentioned that. So Tiamat enabled the killing of itself? Why? Oh, I don't remember that. They talk about how they were joined with the Celestial as well. Mm, Right. Well, again, does this indicate that I've missed something then? That there's actually some real important thing going on here? Well, the information still isn't there. That's the thing. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't pick up on the merging minds with the celestial thing the first time, at least not as prominently as I did the second time. So the second time I picked up on it, I was like, okay, that's weird. Why did that happen? Yeah, I think you're right. I have to allow for the fact that there could be more going on there. They do plan many, many years in advance here, so there has to be more going on. But then that does bring us to your point. They still need to do something with this film. And I think Cersei is where I'd be expecting that. I think Cersei is the opportunity to do that because she's the one that's going to say, I'm not the warrior, I'm the thinker. I'm the one who's got the compassion. And she's the one that's going to say, now, think about this. You've just had this plot revealed to you and... Ajax is fighting with Icarus on either side of this problem, this concern, this fight. They're just going back and forth, black and white, good and evil. And it's Cersei that turns around and says, no, 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 you've missed a trick here. You think there's two sides to this coin, but it's not that simple. There's another thing you've not thought of. And then when she comes round to it, she speaks to Arishan the judge. And he replies, you've evolved past my point. 
It's not just this back and forward. It's nothing to do with Earth, in fact. I'm trying to grow Eternals into something better. Congratulations, you've just evolved into level two. Off we go with the main plot. This was all just a waste of time. She's then horrified that he would actually wipe out an entire planet Earth just to evolve her. And there's the guilt. Now, I'm not saying this is the only way of doing it, but I'm just saying that is one way I can think of Cersei not only giving you that insight into Arisham having a grander plan, but also make it part of her emotional journey and giving her a reason to being. Give me another three ways of doing it. I'm, I'm quite happy with that. But the other Celestial is a creator Tiamat. Arisham's decided he can lay waste to Tiamat to grow his new version of Cersei. It didn't work a million times before, but this one's going to work. That could come out, but you would still be right. I would have rather have seen some of that in this film I wonder if they will. I wonder if something like that will come out in following films. Could be, to know. Could happen, yeah. But there's also the wider universal implications of what the Eternals end up doing here. So they stop the birth of a Celestial because they've fallen in love with the planet Earth. Mm. There's nothing they could do about the millions of planets that they helped destroy beforehand. Fine. They can't feel guilty about it because they don't remember it. Again, that's fine to an extent. But then there's this, and I think it is addressed in the film. Someone, maybe Fastos, says, do we have the right to do this? The talk is, in order to preserve life in the universe, the Celestials have to be born because they give birth to suns that then give birth to other planets that are then seeded. What's well, the classic needs of the many situation, isn't it? We sacrifice the lives of 7 billion people. It's not a lot in the grand universal scale of things so that we can give birth to trillions of people or countless trillions of people across an infinite timeline really so there is that okay earth is potentially special but what are we going to do are we going to to kill all the celestials now are we going to go stop them from doing that there's a hint at that in the post-credit scene yeah liberating the rest of the eternals yeah so we yeah we have to wake them up to the fact that they've been lied to all this time and then are we just going to put an end to the Celestials? What are the cosmic implications of that? And I did some research because I'm not huge on the Eternals as a brand. I haven't really read their initial run of it or anything like that. I've seen some of the characters crop up in other things. Cersei is quite prominent in other things. I think she was an Avenger at one point, but then again, who hasn't been? So in the mythology of the Marvel Universe in the comics, and I suspect they'll bring this in at some point, The Celestials are these beings that bring light to the universe. They literally bring light. They stand against the darkness. And obviously, because it's comics, the darkness is represented by a being. It is a sentient being, and it's called Null. Null is actually responsible for the creation of the symbiotes, like Venom and so on. But that's a whole other mess of crap. Like Nowhere, for example. Nowhere the pulled out celestial head that the Guardians of the Galaxy movies go to occasionally in the comics that head was locked off by null so he's a being out there that the celestials are always wary of the more light they bring into the universe the less influence he has and then he can't cause them any problems so you start killing celestials stopping them being born null gains power and can escape and create havoc so i think that will happen at some point and maybe that's what they're indicating is one of the things that's coming but that's unimaginable levels of power as well I don't know how on the, I was about to say how on earth. I don't know how in the multiverse you actually make that an emotional storyline. I admit they have actually managed to go up a level because I was wondering how on earth do you go up from the multiverse? And I can't uh, tip my hat to them. Yep, you've gone up to another level there. But saying that, I don't even know how that works now because 
are these beings part of the cycle of beginning and ending do they get reborn or are they outside this are they stuck in a timeline from loki and the multiverse and they just keep being reborn is there a null for every timeline or is there a null for everything so i guess there's a couple of layers you can even put on top of that i've really underestimated this but it gives it more of a reason though i have to admit it gives it more of a reason because i don't think the argument we stopped people being born is a good argument because i've not tried to have a thousand children does that mean i'm been irresponsible and, and not brought a thousand boys and girls into existence when you start to think of it it doesn't really make an argument for me i've not blocked people existing well by implication i have i should have been trying to birth as many people as possible so i didn't really value that argument but the idea that you're fighting against an active force of negativity does actually stand as a bigger argument i have to admit yeah, and I have no idea how you would characterise Null in films should they get to that point, which I think they will at some point. But he's a singular being. The Celestials are many beings. Yeah. So the, the idea is there's so many of them so they can combat him by bringing light into the universe and lessening his hold. Yeah. So he's kind of stuck outside the universe. I think there's only one Null in the multiverse because he's one of those yeah. creation forces. Right. Before there was a multiverse, before there was anything, there was him and then stuff happened. I can't remember what the, I guess, the light equivalent is that maybe created the Celestials. I didn't research into it that far and probably should have. But the idea is that Celestials are the self-perpetuating species, I suppose, that bring light into the universe and continue to bring light into the universe. And I guess if the timelines of these films aren't that extensive, you would think it would probably take millions of years to do any kind of damage to what the Celestials have done. Mm, But... Just saying five years, for example, which will be a tough pill to swallow. In five years, we have stopped the birth of millions of celestials, and now the universe is in trouble. And Null has gained enough power to come through, and he's going to wipe us all out. Yeah, they'd be fine. <laughs> You've got that problem of, what can the Hulk do against this guy? <laughs> right, no, not the Hulk, but Banner or Professor Hulk, if you will. Right, They'll come up with a MacGuffin, that'll be fine. And then Scarlet Witch will power it. And Stephen Strange will tell him which direction to point it in because he's got the knowledge. That'll be fine. We're absolutely fine. I guess that's the danger when you move into this cosmic realm with stuff. It just becomes so unimaginable. And that's what Jack Kirby was good at as a writer and an artist back in the day. Yeah, I'm just going to play around with gods. That's what I want to do. <laughs> and that's what he did. And it's just this weird detail that exists in the background of the Marvel Universe now. It will have certain consequences though which they have handled already but i don't think works for too many characters but it was quite funny that in some of the later films ant-man was a bit useless (laughs) he kind of knew it yeah i'll just do my bit you need that thing holding up by a big version of me i can totally do that and he was really happy to just be involved but it's not just going to be him that becomes a bit useless 90 percent everyone have to step back (laughs) And just say, yep, sorry, you're right, it's all you. You just go for it. And you're starting to get to the point where you're wondering who is going to have to join that bench. Because it's going to be the people that you'd expect at the very start, your Hawkeyes and so on. But if you if you eventually get to the point where, do you know what, Captain Marvel? You're going to have to sit on the bench. You're just not powerful enough. <laughs> 
it's just going to be ridiculous. Yeah, and I guess that's part of the problem with this in terms of power levels as well. Because the Deviants are roughly equivalent power to the Eternals, when they're fighting, you don't get the sense of how powerful either of them are because they're not quite evenly matched, but they're mm. on the same level. I think you would get more of a sense of how powerful the Deviants are if one of our established heroes was fighting them. Someone like Thor. If mm. Thor gets his ass handed to him by a Deviant, then you get a sense of how powerful they are. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, well, I've no reason to believe that Icarus isn't any less powerful than a Deviant. He obviously isn't. He's able to kill them. So I'm fine with that. But because the levels are relative, yeah. you don't get a sense of how powerful they really are, if yeah. that makes sense. And it doesn't mean much at this level. I will say the same thing about all of this stuff. The most impressive I am more powerful moment I've ever seen is the line that one of the spods says as Captain America jumps out of an airplane into the water without a parachute. And the, the guy's almost pushing forwards to try and remind him to get the parachute. And your brain goes, yeah, that's actually quite impressive. And it's nothing. Compared to what they can all do, that is a nothing moment. But actually, it's been the most meaningful show of power I've ever seen. It actually made me think. I did almost sit up a bit because I thought, yeah, oh my God, he's going to die if he hits the water. Oh, no, he's not because he's a superhero. Brilliant. Right, it's fine. Yeah. And you were just into it. But when you get to the point of all these characters, it's moved out of the realms of it meaning anything. He shoots lasers out of his eyes and the thing gets knocked back into a building. Everybody gets knocked back when they get hit by a laser. So it doesn't mean anything. If you hit a superhero with an energy beam, it's not going to do any damage. It's just going to knock them away. So all energy beams are the same. So if you've got energy beams as a weapon, well, no, but rubbish, trade them in. Unless somebody actually shows you the level of power. So, yeah. And to manage that level of power as well, you'd need Icarus along with Iron Man, both shooting lasers at the Deviant, with Icarus mm. doing damage and Iron Man doing nothing. Yeah. And that gives you that sense of, okay, this is why Icarus is important here, as an example. Yeah. Captain America throws a shield at the Deviant. It doesn't even wince. Does nothing. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, stuff like that. Even Scarlet Witch has trouble. Then you would notice, yeah, because you've actually seen her against the others. Yeah. So it, it is actually a measuring stick that's been used. Yeah. Yeah, it's something they don't do in this film. And it's, it's the relative levels fine. The Deviants, they're just an obstacle that crop up now and again. That's what they are. They would have been better as a bit more interesting. Though, actually, I didn't understand them either. Really, didn't get the Deviants at all. They're animals, but they're also capable of becoming aware. But that's their floor. I didn't really understand what they were supposed to do. They're put on the planet as a challenge to make the humans stronger, but there's no way the humans can be stronger. They're just going to be wiped out. So what are they supposed to do? Arsham explains that the deviants are introduced to a population of a planet to get rid of all the apex predators so that the dominant life on the planet can evolve to the point where the population is strong enough for the birthing celestial to feed on them. But the thing they're supposed to protect is also the apex predator. Yeah, but there's a flaw in their design that means that they went rogue. But I don't know if that means they were introduced on all planets at the same time or they were like, we'll continue to introduce the deviants to a population because they do get rid of the apex predators, but we'll also introduce the Eternals to solve the problem of the fact that we made these flawed things. We're just going to assume that we're not going to make flawed things this time. We'll do it right this time. Fine. <laughs> Yeah, they're just rubbish. We need new Celestials because they're just naff. Yeah. <laughs> something they've done right. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. So we're going to introduce these dangerous beings to this population 
to get rid of all the predators that will prey on the... Well, you don't even know. Like, what's, what life force do they need? They will selectively eat the apex predators apart from one of them that they will choose to leave. If numbers is all it is, do you not just leave the planet and populations will grow as the circle of life endures? Well, there's always one species that's going to become dominant. What they're suggesting yeah. is it's not the right species. And again, we come back into the idea, if Arisham has got a deeper plan where it's, no, I don't want the dominant species. I want to selectively choose which species becomes dominant for my own nefarious purposes. Now I'm listening. I get that. You've got a plan and we don't know what it is yet. And therefore I have to leave myself open to that. But I couldn't see it. And I was so lost in the explanation after he stopped talking. I'm going, hang on, wait, no, stop the plot. Stop the film. I need to think of it. <laughs> and I couldn't do it. Couldn't get to it. Yeah, none of this makes sense. Why did you introduce the deviants? It's the, I'm going to bring in the snakes to take care of the mice. How do you take care of the snakes? Don't worry, we'll get a predator that can prey on the snakes. It's like, but what do you do with that predator? We'll, we'll get yeah. something else. I know a woman who swallowed a fly. I mean, this has been known as a problem for ages. Absolutely. It's just idiotic, really. The Celestials don't seem to know what they're doing. And like I say, if it is a case of just population, you can just wait until the dominant species asserts itself normally. Yeah. But yeah, why do you need it to be humans in this case? Or why did you need it to be whatever other species are on other planets? Yeah, absolutely. And there could be a reason for that. And now I'm listening, but that's the problem. I don't think the film gives me enough to let me think that there must be a reason. Now, now I know I should, as I said earlier, I should trust Marvel because I've trusted them before and they've actually proven to me that I should shut up and wait. So all I can say is I would have liked a little bit more in this film. It's not that I'm saying that there's not a possibility, but I would have liked a little bit more. And how could I have gotten it? I think stop explaining stuff. I come back to that bit that I opened with before the spoilers. Cut all that stuff out. Put me in the middle of their current problem. Let them just explain enough to keep the plot going and drop the rest. Why are they deviants? Well, they are. Arisham, the judge, is never going to explain himself to us because we're merely the beings that do his bidding. All he has to say is, I have my reasons, or that's not yeah, for you to know, or just whatever. Just do your job. Get on with it. Stop phoning me on this line. I've got things to do. Get that sphere out of your neck. And that would have been better... Because it also leaves the mystery open for Eternals 2 or Guardians 6 or wherever you want to do it, because you want to find that out. These people just don't care. These are these celestials. They just don't care. I'm a wiping out your whole planet. Well, yeah, so what? You're just ants to me. Go, go away. You know, I really don't care. They also make them a pretty hideous villain because they don't care. You always ask in these Marvel films for, we always say, which is the best villain? Which villain is not just a twirly moustache? And which villain is a bit more interesting than some of the stuff we've been given? And a powerful god that just doesn't care because it's got better things to do is a really good villain because it makes sense. Why are you killing all these humans? Well, they're in my way. Fine. I'm off things to do. It's unpleasant, but that's what a real villain should be, I think. So I'm, I wasn't necessarily into the villains of this piece either. The lead deviant, I not really do much for me. I really feel sorry for him in the end. Almost maybe slightly felt sorry for him, but not really. It didn't really do enough. He sort of asked for a little tiny bit of understanding, but really wasn't bothered if he got it. Didn't really have anything to say on the Celestials, so didn't really connect him with anything there. And otherwise just created massively powerful killing machines. So again, 
couldn't really connect with him. I don't know who my big villain was in this piece, but it it wasn't really Icarus, it wasn't really the Celestials, it wasn't really the Deviants, and it wasn't really the challenge that Cersei had to overcome. I don't know if you had a better villain in your mind, but I don't think I got one. No, not really. And then there was a bit of a cop-out ending in the way that, okay, you killed Tiamat, fair enough, I'm going to take you all away and judge you on this. I'm going to use your memories to decide whether Earth is worthy. We'll be back at some point. You could wipe out Earth just out of spite now if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. that why aren't you? Experiment. Push the button. Yeah. yeah. There's no reason why not. It doesn't really work in that sense. I get the whole, you've betrayed your mission and I'm going to take you away and judge you for it. I understand that. That makes sense. It's funny that Kingo gets scooped up despite the fact he's the one that decided not to get involved in the end. Mm. <laughs> he's the innocent one here. I suppose Arsham wasn't really watching in that level of detail. He's not a micromanager as such, is he? Mm. <laughs> Which I suppose is one advantage he has. He will be. It'll happen. That's how it'll go. <laughs> yeah, he'll start micromanaging. But yeah, a big face appears in the sky and scoops up people and it gives people things to talk about for a while, which... I suppose is it's just part of life now in the Marvel universe. This weird crap's just going to keep happening to us. There is now a giant index finger made of marble in the ocean, mm. plus part of a head and liver. I think we should bring him up there. Actually, Kinger, I'm feeling a bit bad about this because I said that I didn't hate the film, and I feel like all I've done is hate on it. So <laughs> we could bring this around to some of the good stuff. And Kingo and and his Alfred, who I can't think of the actual name as now. It's on here actually, Karen. Karun, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The two of them were just a joy to watch at all times, I think. Yeah, the comedy sidekick and their comedy sidekick. Except when he just walks out and you think, oh, they were great. Loved all that. Opened with a dance number. What more can I ask for? Bollywood number, nonetheless. Yeah. yeah. And then comedy partnership between them all. Everything was a winner. They couldn't have done any better, those two, I don't think. I've got a bizarre viewing relationship with Kamal Nanjiani. Sometimes I find him funny and sometimes he crosses a line into annoying. But he doesn't always, so it means I can watch him. In this, I think he was teetering close to that line, but never quite crossed it. And there was moments of reflection in him as well. He's the one that notices that Sprite is in love with Icarus, which ends up being nothing but her motivation to go with him, really. And they liken it to the whole Peter Pan thing. Tinkerbell is in love with Peter Pan and jealous of Wendy. It simplifies it and it gives you that, but it also shows that he understands people in the way that Cersei is kind of supposed to, actually. He's the one that spent time with people and understanding people. And I think he's a good vehicle for exposition as well. The documentary thing that gets around the whole, why is he explaining this to us? That's because he's making a documentary. I would have had more of that, actually, quite happily and less of the flashbacks into one yeah. time. Yeah, remember when this happened? Oh, no, we've got to get this story on. This was brilliant. And he just tells the story of some of these things. That would have been better and faster, I think. Or have him narrate the flashbacks like in Shang-Chi when they get interrupted by the <laughs> the flight attendant saying, what do you want for dinner? Vegetarian or beef? We don't have any of the vegetarian left. It's just beef. Right? We'll just have the yeah. beef then. Okay. It could have been a bit like that. Would fit his character as well, yeah. But he was good. Yeah, I liked Kingo. And like I said earlier, the whole idea, he's a dynasty of actors. He's his own great-grandfather, his own father, his own grandfather. So that's one way to do it. That's one way to get around the whole I'm a mortal problem. And he's very geared into like entertainment and things like that, which brings up a lot of laughs. I did find that the powers of the characters however inexplicable in their selection were all different and did make everybody stand out so i don't know why they had their various powers 
but given that I didn't feel like I got a good enough introduction to them as characters, I could easily tell them apart as their powers. It actually made me wanted more of that. I would have liked to have seen them using their powers in unison more. You get the fight on the beach at the end where you use the person who can nail people to the floor being used in unison with the person who is the opposite of being nailed down as she speeds past. And they do do a good back and forth with that. I didn't want that fight scene because I wanted more of an emotional end point. Well, that's not true. I didn't want that fight scene at that point. But that fight scene earlier on, when it was more about beating stuff up, I would have really valued that. Because when they're fighting the deviance, it is a bit of a, an Avengers Superman set up. They hit stuff and they fire their laser beams at people and they fire energy at people and they use weapons on people. But you don't get the feeling of a group of 10 people who have had to learn over millennia how to use their weapons and their powers in a fight. And then at this end point, you suddenly get these two people fighting in a really coordinated fashion. And I was sitting there going, yes, like this scene, wanted it earlier. Don't want it now. But if I just sit and watch this fight scene on the beach now, I was for that because it felt like it was all, well, a bit more intelligently plotted. I mean, I know you used Makari's speed earlier on to save the humans from the ravaging deviant and she ran in and saved them all. But I think over millennia, surely they would have found a way of, I pick something up and I pass it to you who can manipulate it in midair in such a way as creates a cage over this deviant because we can't fight 10 at once, but if we trap eight of them, fight two, then I'll do something else and you'll do that with it. And they play tennis with their powers. You'd think over four millennia before they split up, they'd have developed some pretty serious plays where they've got, what if we do the when I was watching Star Wars film maneuver. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, the deviant came through the wall and whilst you were doing that, and I did this with the popcorn. And they know what it is. And they just refer back to 7,000 years worth of history. So I, I liked their powers. Would have loved to have seen a lot more of them in play, I think, actually. Like in the Avengers where Iron Man needs to take out some aliens so he reflects his beams off Cap's shield and Absolutely. And that was like that. improvised. They hadn't fought together before. The Avengers did this in the spur of the moment. And you're telling me 10 Eternals that have lived for 7,000 years didn't have the time to come up with one trick. So, yeah. Well, the sequence that stands out to me is the Babylon one because that's an extended one and that shows them in their prime, so to speak, when they were in the midst of their mission and they were getting on with stuff. But usually it was Icarus flies off and deals with flying one. <laughs> and the others just deal with whatever's on the ground in their own way. What's Cersei up to? I don't know, turning stuff into stuff. Well, her job was to run away over 7,000 years. To be fair, not just her. There was a couple of them that had to run away. But their job was to get out of danger and maybe herd a couple of humans into a building, which I didn't really understand because the protection of a wooden hut was nothing. But... Well, she turns it into metal of some sort, doesn't she? Oh, that's true, actually. Yeah. But does that even really help? I don't even remember. Well, it depends if the survival of humans is a necessary thing or not. Again, that's something we're not... Well, we we know that the population needs to grow, but at the same time, why are they here? Why can't Macari just be dragging them 10 miles away and then coming back? Yeah. She could do that 
pretty instantly. Yeah, I think the powers are largely just because they're cool. They look cool and they're visually dynamic and all that stuff. Mm. And yeah, to be fair, that works. And it's quite interesting how they do it as a bit of a pastiche of the Justice League, for some of them anyway. Icarus is Superman. The film explicitly makes a comparison between him and Superman. Dina is very much like Wonder Woman, the way she poses with the sword and shield or the spear and shield, that kind of stuff. And Fastus is interesting. In the comics, he is defined as someone that knows how things work. But how do you visualise that? You turn him into Green Lantern, where he just makes constructs out of nothing, out of thin air, which is, again, fine. It works. It looks cool. I like the way he's fiddling his hands around. You see the machines building and things. You've got Macari, the Flash, obviously, super speed. The rest don't really have analogues in the Justice League as such. King goes with, again, his gun arms were pretty cool. Or his gun hands were pretty cool. The beams he could make out of his hands. And when he charges up the super bullet or whatever it is and kills the deviant, it's like, did you get that? It's like, yeah, I got it. (laughs) That was a good moment. But why isn't he just doing that all the time? I'm just going to stand in the back, charge these up and fire from a distance. These questions you end up asking yourself if you aren't fully invested, I suppose. And during the Babylon sequence, certainly the first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm enjoying this display of power. I'm fine with it. So it it succeeded in that respect. Is it fair to expect it to stand up to repeat viewings where you are actively scrutinising things a bit more because it is a multiple viewing? Well, it is fair because you want to watch something more than once. I mean, when I go back and watch the first Avengers film, I still enjoy it. There are some things that we all started to question. We all did it. How are they talking to each other? I have no idea. (laughs) But it didn't matter. In fact, there's a YouTube video out there. I'm not going to be able to name it at all because it's too long ago. But the argument was, they've got this problem, that problem, but we don't care because it's amazing. And you don't. When Cap turns around to Hulk and says Hulk, and he gets a really angry glare and responds simply with, smash <laughs> that's the point where you want to stand up i go yes and I, I get that feeling every time i watch it so is it fair i would say it absolutely is i don't really believe i'm going to come back to eternals many times and that's a shame again i'm not saying i hated it but what i am saying is if somebody gives me a choice of film i'm probably going to put avengers on even though i've seen it before yeah since i mentioned it what do you think of the explicit references to the DC universe oh, as fictional yeah. characters in the Marvel universe. I love the idea that in the Marvel universe, DC is a set of comics within which universe Marvel is a set of comics. And it's just this complete circle that goes round and round and round and round. You told me I had to use the DC TV instead of the films, but if you go in the right place, they can all keep going round and round in a circle like that. I think that's just brilliant. And Star Wars is in there. I'm not into my big lovey-dovey moments, but the idea that the two of us can be friends by acknowledging each other in such a... And I hope it is that. I hope they are being nice about each other rather than saying, you know, you're just a comic in my universe and they're trying to beat each other. I hope it's a nice, friendly nod of good-spirited competitors. Because in my head it is. We acknowledge you. We think Superman and the Hulk are good enough as characters that the people in our universe wish they were them. And that, to me, is a respectful nod to say that, yeah, our children wish they could be your superheroes, as well as their own. Don't get me wrong. They want to be Captain America. But some of them want to be Superman. And they've not just said, yeah, Superman, he's rubbish. He's a worse Captain America. They've actually said respectfully, yeah, we like these people. Icarus, you're just a Superman copy. You are. <laughs> That's actually rather pro-DC. They're insulting Icarus a little. Well, they're teasing him. 
I don't wear a cape, he says, as a defence. Yeah, they're teasing him. It's all done nicely, but it, it does show respect for the other universe. I'm really up for that. That's a big thing and an important thing. It's also a cultural touchstone as well, because the Marvel movies exist in a universe where the Marvel characters don't exist. That's fictional characters. And mm. some of these characters are important in the building of our own mythologies, actually. Yeah, they are now, yeah. Yeah, if you think about how influential some of these characters are, I always say that Star Trek exists in a world where Star Trek didn't exist to inspire it. Yeah. So maybe in Star Trek at some point they'll introduce some fictional, influential space franchise that existed in the 21st century that acts as the inspiration for Star Trek. I don't know. But you get that in some TV shows as well, where they have an analogue of their own TV show in the TV show, and it's supposed to like mm. shine a light on that. So yeah, I like the idea that there's a mythology built around superheroes already, fictional superheroes. So in this universe, you were getting people hearing about the exploits of Captain America, a real-life superhero during World War II, while they were reading Superman comics. I don't know, it's this interesting thing about one of the counter arguments to that is why would superheroes be of interest to these people in this universe? Because they can see superheroes by looking out their windows, so to speak. But then we watch TV shows about stuff that we know exist in our world and they're still interesting. Well, yeah, plus the comics came first. Iron Man just turned up. The Hulk just turned up. They wanted their superheroes in their comics, you assume, since the 40s. I mean, we had Captain America, but you might not have thought of him as a superhero back then if he was by himself. Yeah. So I think people have always wanted their stories of great humans before they had any. And the great humans would have actually, in our own history, looked to the great humans before them. It's not impossible. Somebody like Steve, when he was just Steve before he was Captain America, himself grew up reading Superman comics. Because if you want to be that kind of good-hearted person and you didn't see it in your life around you, maybe he owes his morality to the comic books he was reading. Doesn't maybe. Need to be, but could have been, you know, it's a possibility. Well, Superman first came into existence in 1938, so Steve would be a bit old to have his... No, but I mean, just in general, why would you want somebody? Because these people also need inspiring rather than worry about which particular hero it was. The, the point stands that they would have looked to be inspired. And Icarus even mentions, I could lead the Avengers. He could literally become Superman. He could put on that costume and, and yeah. be him. Yeah, and it's a shame, actually, because uh, I would have liked to have seen a bit more from his character. I was reading about his character afterwards, by the way, uh-huh. and we were wondering... Why was his performance the way it was? Because I I refuse to believe that Richard Madden is incapable based on what I've seen before. We talked about it after because I said I found him so flat and dull. And you you told me that he was good in Game of Thrones. Either I did or somebody else in the group did, certainly. But but yeah, I would say that I have seen him be better than this. So it bothered me. So I had to look into it. And the suggestion on the internet is that he was directed to be that way that it was the director that influenced him to behave in this particular direction. It was somebody else's choice. And that made sense to me, because I don't know that you would have automatically picked what was shown on camera yourself as an actor. I think as an actor, you would have wanted to give more, because I think that's your instinct. I have no idea. I'll know, I never have any idea what goes on set. But what just generally around the internet suggested that the natural instincts of the actor might have been to go more whereas he was directed to go less and in the plot that we got going less meant they had to do less with the plot that had very little for him to do in it 
anyway. To do that kind of character justice, you really needed to see a lot more scenes of conflictedness where he's trying to figure out, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I also understand the woman I love is giving me this other argument. And you really want to see this character battle with himself. And he doesn't. But why doesn't he? Because he's not given the chance to on screen. In the chat between him and Ajax, there's no real ability for them to have a deep emotional argument here. Because he doesn't, at that point, really flip out. She doesn't break down and say how she's really come to love humans. They mention it. It's in the words. But they don't really freak out. And you don't see afterwards any response to that argument. Nothing goes wrong because of it. They have the argument by themselves. Nobody points out that both of them are in a really bad mood afterwards because there isn't anybody to do that. So I don't think the script allows for the conflict that we need to see. So if this not in the script and your director is saying, be more stoic, then you're screwed as an actor. I think he got nailed to the wall here. If what I've read on the internet is true, and the internet is, of course, as we know, full of only truth... <laughs> then I think he got nailed to the wall a bit there. And that's a shame, actually. I think there was more that could have been done with that. Yeah, so I didn't buy his relationship with Cersei. I didn't sense any chemistry in their interactions. I didn't get anything from them as such. That whole millennia-spanning love story that they're supposed to have, you don't get a sense of it. And you don't see it either, but you don't get a sense of it. It's not in the script. You can't get it because it's not there to be had. I wouldn't hold either actor at fault with that. There's just too much in the script for that sort of stuff to come out. Yeah, and I didn't buy his betrayal either for similar reasons. I didn't feel like he was passionate enough about anything to believe in anything. And then that means that his realisation that he was wrong to turn against his family, his people doesn't land either because it doesn't come from anywhere it's these little problems that just keep cropping up with his character because they have to do that extended flashback to explain well he betrayed Ajak because she at some point told him the truth and he's been upholding that truth ever since and now that she's changed her mind he has to take it upon himself to make sure the emergence happens but I don't understand why he believes that no well here's a possibility for you then because I think the film could have opened with that as a mystery they could have opened with nine of them having some sort of regular check-in or one of them comes round to the other surviving eight and says, hey, what are you doing here? One of our number is dead. And that's how the film opens. And there's this mystery of who did it. And then when you're playing this reveal to all of the other eight, which is now your team building again, because they've got a reason to come back together because somebody has managed to kill an Eternal and there's some evidence of it being a deviant. This is your reason to get them all back together. And whilst they're doing it, and they're having their chat, they're having their same old fallouts, some of those arguments can reveal that one of them, preferably more of them, obviously, have got things they're hiding. And when you eventually get the reveal that one of them is hiding, that it was me who did it, massive explosion and that, and it kicks off that's not even me being clever i've not come up with that i've literally stolen that plot from a couple of movies and it would allow you nonetheless though to get straight into the action and have these things that were missing between the characters i don't think it would have hurt it picking up one of these tried and true styles because some of the other Marvel films, or, or the what-ifs at least, were embracing other styles. I don't think you'd have had to have left the Marvel stuff alone to have put in a bit of a mystery. 
And you know, I think it would have solved these problems. And again, it's not the only way of solving it. I won't even pretend it's that, but I think it was a valid one. And it would have given much more time in the script to have what you wanted to their connection. Well, when they come back together for the first time, you'll see that emotion. When they start talking about, oh, we're, we're going to start doing the mission again. You know, do we have to do the mission again? I've been thinking about it. More conflict. And everybody would have got a chance to put their politics and ideologies on the table. More conflict and so on and so on. That could have been a good way. Yeah. It comes too late in the game as well because you don't really have a sense of what Icarus thinks of anything at that point, really. Because no. before the betrayal reveal, it just looks like he's along with whatever Cersei wants to do because he loves her, which is mm. fine as a motivation. That's as good as any, I suppose. But it turns out he's been stringing them along this whole time, making them believe the deviants are behind it, which they kind of are, because he fed Ajax to a group of deviants. That's what he did. Mm. But you don't get a sense of, okay, here's why he's so loyal to Arsham. And you get the idea he's a bit pissed off that he's been passed up for leadership because he always assumed it would be him because I'm the strong white man and I'm the natural choice there. I don't know. You get a bit of the whole Ajax is we're on different sides of the fence here, so I would never choose you to succeed me. You just have to understand that I have changed my mind about this. And her explanation for changing her mind is a bit weak because all it does is reference the plot of Endgame. Why do you suddenly love the humans? Half the population was killed and the people of this planet brought them back with a the snap of a finger. What she's saying is, these people are remarkable. But what she's actually saying is, I loved Endgame and really liked what the characters did. Yeah. It's necessary to draw that connection to the Marvel Universe, the wider Marvel Universe, in theory. But it also dilutes the character motivations in a lot of ways because mm. they aren't coming from within. They're coming from... Yeah referencing other stuff that's gone on and it's a bit empty in that way i think and to be believable as we've changed our mind with our interference of humanity you'd want to see it come right from the beginning yeah they actually fell in love with ancient humans and the thanos thing is just what tips her over the edge it's just the final straw she always knew that she was in love with the humans a bit more than the previous species but that was just a final straw and she had to just give in. And it would be a reasonable final straw because in all of their previous operations, nobody wiped out half the universe. So I can believe that was unique. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah and you do get a slight sense of that throughout. There's the, I forget where they are, but it's when Droog looks at the people fighting, he's like, look at how horrible these people are to each other. Why are we trying to protect them again? And that's the point where the team fractures because we've dealt with all the deviants. We don't need to be together anymore. We're all thinking differently. See you later. And Droog leaves. Fine. That's okay. And she's the one making the case for, no, they have the potential to rise above this. And he says, well, no, how are we any better than them if soldiers fighting amongst ourselves? If we continue on this way so you get a sense of that and you get a sense that she's warming up to the humans but again it's it's a quick thing and then they move on and then ajak isn't really a prominent figure in the film because she's only there in the flashbacks and then she's dead i actually don't think there was a need to have the character in the film at all i think she could have just been the plot point at the beginning because she's she doesn't you know do enough again no offense to the actress or what was going on i'm still saying it's a script thing i think that the script didn't need that person in anything well flashbacks maybe not in the modern day didn't need her since we've mentioned thanos a few times one of the arguments against it is why didn't the eternals get involved in the thanos situation especially since the whole point of it was to increase the earth's population and mm. the answer is there they don't know that that's what their mission is 
at that point. They don't know what they're really doing there. So as far as they're concerned, deviants aren't involved, not our problem. Yeah. And that's fine. But also Thanos is established as being an Eternal because you meet his brother, Eros, or Star Fox, who is, well, his brother, who is an Eternal. So Thanos is also an Eternal. And in the comics, they've done this whole retconning thing where Thanos has deviant genes or something like that, mm. which means that he's not accepted as an Eternal. Gone off piste a bit, yeah. Yeah. But then you have a bit of extra potential weight to Thanos' motivation to wipe out half the universe as well, because through Thena you get this mad weary, they call it, which is too many memories and I'm driven nuts by them. So she's flawed in that she's remembering the genocides that she presided over in previous not previous lives, but in previous missions. And it's driven her a bit nuts and it's turned her into a liability. Thanos could have the same thing. So he could be aware of what the Celestials are doing, but without being fully aware of it. So he knows that wiping out half the universe will certainly delay them. Mm. And that's one thing he can do. So that's, that's something you could add to Thanos later. And I guess with his brother around, they could potentially do that. That would be interesting. It sounds like it's something they're going to have to put in after the fact rather than say, oh, we meant this all along because nobody would believe them. It'll be Harry Styles telling us yeah. about it, possibly through song. Who knows? Okay, well. <laughs> but again, it comes back to, in that case, the Celestians really are rubbish because yeah. one of the biggest effects on all of their plans didn't notice. Didn't notice at all. But I suppose from a cosmic point of view, it's only another few million years make a difference a few thousand years whatever it'd be interesting to do the maths on it actually because the whole thing about a population doubles every x years so if you half something then it really doesn't take that long to get back up as you say to the the next level whatever it is it's not a linear progression so actually when you think about it thanos did this horrendous thing but it probably only bought them a little while or as they say in the film it bought us five years because they only had seven days, didn't they, originally? When Thanos clicked his fingers, they said there were seven days out. So it specifically bought them five years. That's all he did. Thanos just, he didn't do anything horrible at all. He just changed things by about five years. In five years, yeah, not much happens. He wasn't that bad a villain at all. Well, part of Thanos' plan was that he was going to wake the universe up to the waste that was going on and they would be better afterwards, yeah. which didn't happen because yeah. everybody was grieving the fact that they lost everyone that they cared about. Well, he doesn't have to be didn't right. Didn't see that coming. Especially if you are, in fact, the mad titan, then you don't have to be right. No. He's driven, but not right. But I think that argument is well enough explained, the, why didn't they interfere in Thanos? Because they don't know what their mission actually is. Again, though, you've got to think, if you're building an AI, just tell it. You're building a computer to do a job for you. The first thing you do is decide its base program. What do I need you to do? Shall I hide it from you? Why? Who are these idiots? But again, Irish and the judge, secret plan. Tap your head, could be. Keep an eye out. Yeah, this AI, we need to format the hard drive every few thousand years, otherwise they'll go nuts. Mm. Which explains why the memories get taken from them, I suppose. I mean, fair enough. Machines go wrong. That's something that is a hardware problem that you maybe can't fix. But the idea that you purposely design your software to be counter to your plan is a bit weird. Yeah. Again, they made the Deviants flawed. The Deviants didn't behave in the way that they were supposed to. The Eternals, they have free will. They weren't supposed to do that. Right. The Celestials were just a bit rubbish. That's the bit I'd forgotten. So, yeah, they can't build for toffee. Your gods are rubbish. That's what it is. (laughs) 
<laughs> That'd be a good pantheon, that would be. <laughs> Who are these idiots and why do we have to follow what they say? I mean, isn't that the hallmark of a lot of mythology? The gods are more troubled than they're worth. Well, they're more troubled than they're worth, but because they've got very selfish designs. I mean, the Greek pantheon were just a large collection of jerks, but they weren't <laughs> a large collection of incompetents which is what you're thinking with the Celestials. The reason the Greek gods made mistakes is because they were emotional, because they worked against each other, because they were just too selfish. They had their egos. None of them just said, I'm going to make this creature today. Oops, gave it too many legs. That was never a, a lesson that the Greek people had to learn. Careful when you make a stool, you might accidentally put five legs on it. You know, that's a that's rubbish myth. Yeah, and the whole madness thing as well, they don't go too far into it. It's just Thena becomes a threat at different points. Yeah. And when she kills the Deviant at the end, that's supposed to be her getting over it. But why? Oh, I didn't get any of that, actually. That's another thing that I'm thinking I don't understand. The idea that one of these Eternals is going through this hideous tragedy is one of the points where you sit up and go, this is important. I want to see this because this is going to be horrible. When she really loses it and in a key moment does the wrong thing, but it, it never comes to that. Yeah, she does just get better because they want Angelina Jolie in the next film, I suppose. But she doesn't seem to go through any development to get better in the same way Cersei doesn't. And it doesn't have any powerful impact to it either she does occasionally fight against them but at no point do you feel like it's a massive tragedy Thena's actually the film for me I liked what they were doing there was a good part to it but it didn't actually have an emotional hit it didn't seem to have the character development I wanted and ended up just being a little weaker than you were hoping for maybe it's not just Thena but that to me is the hole in a microcosm yeah, and there's there's a good amount of representation in this film. There's a lot. It's, it's really good. So Thena is trauma, mm, yeah. in effect. Yeah. That's what she's representing. Makari's death, played by a deaf actor. First one in a Marvel, yeah. Yeah, you've got the first openly gay relationship, other than that guy in Endgame that talks about a date he goes on with a man. Yeah, first time in a Marvel film, yeah. Well, it's a same-sex kiss in a Marvel movie, mm. which seems like a real baby step. Something Disney do in particular is they try and pander to the Chinese audience. Mm. And by doing that, that means that they have to cut a lot of that stuff. There's a same-sex kiss in Rise of Skywalker that's in the background. You can get rid of it. Mm. You can cut it so that it can get released elsewhere. Mm. Stuff like that. So the fact that they stuck to their guns on this mm, is great. And the fact that this the same-sex relationship with a kid is functional, it's beautiful, it's... Mm affectionate is loving that's everything and it gives fastos amazing motivation right away first korean superhero as well wasn't it or yeah. the other ones they've certainly said right we're going to take a stand here the hindu side of it as well yeah. bollywood and so on even though kingo isn't necessarily hindu maybe he is no it's weird when the people were constructed ai who then had to find the right place for themselves if yeah. It's a bit odd when you do it that way around, because again, if you'd have given it more purpose, you know, we needed you to go and fit in with that area of the world. You are an AI machine that's been constructed to be there, but it's a conceit. I think it's one of the things you just say, no, let's, let's walk away. We, we needed to stake a stand here, and that's more important, and rightly so. But do we not come back to the same place, though, that we did with some of the other stuff? You've taken a stand, and it's good, but would it have not been even better if we could have given these people 
a stand in something that was actually amazingly plotted, that asked important questions. We're not just here because we're here. We're here because we actually want you to think about something. And it could have been, we want you to think about the nature of being a human. You don't have to take a stand the Black Widow way by saying it's a film by a woman about a woman. You don't have to be that blunt with it. You can actually say, no, we're taking a stand on all these various prejudices by putting people into the film and saying that all of us, all of us inclusive, want to discuss what it means to be a human and being lied to all our lives. And it would have been a very powerful film that therefore everybody gets to contribute to. So you want to see this stuff, but isn't it that you want to see them in important things, in developing things, in films that are really going to ask questions as well? Good to see the representation, but you want the film to live up to that somehow. Yeah, and there's actually a conversation in the film that should have happened and doesn't. Fastos and Cersei, they both have similar backgrounds in the sense that they have chosen to live a normal life or live a life and both have taken a partner mm. they've found a partner Vastos is all in he lives with his husband yeah. he has a kid his husband knows everything about him and accepts him for that and well it's a conversation that only Vastos and Cersei could have about the whole what happens when you mm. age out of this relationship yeah. in fact you're going to outlive your son yes Presumably the son isn't biological. Maybe he is. We don't know because you don't know where the kid came from. Is he adopted? Is he Fastos's husband's kid? Is he Fastos's kid? Yeah. An eternal child would have been an extra problem, certainly, for them to deal with. That's a conversation that should have happened. Yeah. And that's a conversation that could have happened if they jumped straight into the murder thing, as I've said. When they meet each other for the first time in all these years... That's the first thing they talk about. How does that work? I've been thinking about living with my boyfriend, but I can't bring myself to do it. It's like, well, it's the best thing I ever did. Here's why. Mm. Yeah. And what's going to happen when he's 90 years old and you're not physically 90 years old? Mm. I don't know. I've not thought that far ahead yet, I suppose. Mm. Could be the the argument. That's enough of an argument, I suppose. Interestingly, all of these things go to making the characters more human which is seemingly kind of the point and is what's missing, therefore, in the film, actually. The whole idea, oh, we've come to fall in love with humanity. We've almost, therefore, started to copy them and be more like them. And this is how you're going to bond with us in the end, because we've become more human. We don't get enough of that. They are eternals and only eternals. And perhaps that's why, even though intellectually I look at these characters and go, oh, I'm so glad they've got some representation in here, rather than, I'm emotionally invested in these people. Please don't kill another one of them. That would be horrible. Or please don't put them through this horrendous thing where they have to talk about losing their child through old age. That would be horrible. I don't have that emotional investment, which, as you're saying, if if they'd put that in, we would have had. I don't even have the emotional investment with Thena. I didn't feel sorry that she'd lost her life. I don't know if I needed to see more of her, if I just needed to see her involved in more conversations. But she doesn't really get to say much or do much until the very end when she's fine and then she's all over. Right, let's make a plan, people. Off we go. She's confused by a toaster, but she'll get there. Well, yes. Why does Makari hide in the ship? They don't explain that. She just does. 
Is it because she's sick of being an object of pity because she's deaf? It could have been a big thing, yeah. I mean, that would be a bit on the nose to be like, oh, yeah, the one that's deaf is an object of pity according to the human race. But that's patterns of behaviour, isn't it? It's all about how you play it. If you're saying this is the reason I left those prejudiced fools behind, then it's a realistic plot. Your responsibility as a writer is just to make sure that that is not the defining and only characteristic you give the person. If they are completely well-defined as a fully rounded human being, but actually the reason they left is because I got fed up with the prejudice, then that's realistic. If she is entirely defined by her deafness and the prejudices thereof, well then yes, she is only a disability on screen. But there is no way we had time to explore that in this film. It just couldn't happen. And then there's the extra questions that people come up with. It's the same question we asked earlier. Why are the Eternals made the way they are? Why would one be made to be deaf? I suppose it doesn't matter for any reason. Fastos is not a prime physical specimen. He's on the heavy side. So is Gilgamesh. He's strong, but he's he's a heavy guy. As someone that watches a lot of CW stuff, it's quite good to see some ordinarily shaped people in <laughs> franchise stuff. Because it gets a bit sickening. It's like everybody has abs. Even Kamal Nanjiani has abs, yeah. although you don't see them. You see his arms, I suppose. But there was that big reveal that he did where it's like, well, look at the shape I'm in for this film yeah. that I'm going to be in. Great. It's another actor that could be ordinary who now just is obscenely ripped. And the Eternals don't need to be because they have powers. Their powers are not defined by their physical characteristics. Unless Arisham has a second plan, a hidden plan that does require these things, which, as I say, I'm trying to stay open to, because then it goes back to the God argument. Yes, there's a level of character development that you need to go through, and this body is going to be part of that. But yeah, it's not there. So Yeah, but I just find that interesting, just the physical differences. Mm. Because Icarus is your straight white male template, really, isn't he? Yes. You know, he's your handsome, square-jawed hero type, I suppose. He's that template, isn't he? And yeah, yeah. the fact that they make him the villain of a sort is saying that maybe that template isn't everything anymore. Or maybe it never was. And that's the sort of thing that I'm not interested in because it's just, we know this, that is true. And you, we do need to take a stand. But I think I'm much more interested in trying to be something a bit more positive than just let's show the bad thing being destroyed. Yes, the paedophile is evil. We know this. You want to be a bit more positive. You want to actually go out and give the positive messages about what all the other characters can do and what the strengths they have are. And then if you really want the message to say that the straight white male can't do it, well, then build it into your main plot line. Don't just have them as the villain but have it to the point where they cannot actually see their way to the intellectual decision-making process at the end because it's their perspective that's narrow. And it's not just straight white man is evil, straight white man is wrong. You're actually saying, no, look, think about it, mate. It's your perspective. You can't see the route to a better universe here. And it becomes part of an intelligent plot rather than just give the man a sign saying, I'm bad. Why aren't you the leader, Icarus? Well, because you suck at it. Yeah, an actual reason. Yeah, because you're not capable of seeing beyond yourself, not just because. You don't have leadership skills. That's why you're not the leader. Neither does Cersei, but never mind. Yeah. If anything, it's Fastos that takes charge in a way when he shows up. Well, yeah, while Cersei can't do it, people come in and start, well, that's where the fracturing comes in. They go their own way because they all make their decisions, which is that point we said before. It's a shame. It's a lost moment where you would expect the hero to step forward and say, team building, guys, 
here we go, doing it together. Yeah. But I found myself interested in all these little character beats that I wanted and didn't get mm. the faster Cersei thing. That would have been a great conversation to see play out. Two immortals that have chosen to live amongst the people but have different perspectives on it. Mm. That would have been great. It would have been a valid conversation. Yeah. And it's that you have a son. Why have you done that? Yeah. How have you done that? Yeah. What does that mean for you? And can I do it? I'm looking after Sprite, who is stuck as a teenager for some reason. Again, why is one of them looking like a teenager for all eternity? And you have to either kill her off or make her human, which is what they do. Because next time she shows up, she will have aged quite yes. visibly. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't really get that either. Again, and I suppose Sprite doesn't get it. Why was I made this way? Oh, well, there's no reason for behind that. Again, unless it comes back to Arisham is playing the role of God, giving them all something to overcome. Same argument. Why did you do this? I don't know, something to do, got bored. Is actually Arisham Loki. Is he a Loki yeah. variant? Now I'm starting trickster. to understand. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense <laughs> to me. Well, there's a the whole thing about the subtext of that unrequited love from Sprite's end is Icarus isn't interesting because I look like a teenager. But he wouldn't have that bias. They're the same age, or equivalent age, really. They're thousands of years old. Well, for a loving relationship, but when it comes down to the physical, you might think, oh, it's going to get a bit weird. Yeah, we can't have Icarus having the hots for a teenager in a blockbuster Marvel movie. It's just not going to happen. But at the same time, it's something that lifts me out when they ask those questions. Mm. And when they draw my attention to those questions, and I'm left thinking, no, that is stupid. Mm. But you haven't explained why it isn't stupid, so... I'm still on the side of it being stupid, thanks. <laughs> Let's deal with that. But yeah, Sprite's going to be human. She's going to go to school. She's going to get a Disney Plus series where she's at school with yeah, Ms. Marvel or something. Yeah, could end up being a young Avenger or something, I suppose. Yeah, don't know. I mean, it could be that she has no power anymore and it's all about her knowledge next time she appears. Yeah, could be. She knows things that no one else will. Yeah. Potentially, she has access to all this kind of cosmic knowledge i don't know but you had the potential for a really good collection of characters here and they just don't quite do it gilgamesh was a favorite of mine even though he's dispatched quite early on by comparison to others he's introduced and then he dies shortly after fair enough yeah i don't think i can add much to it it was another one that i wanted to see potentially or maybe a bit more of rather than just as a side character but yeah what does he do he takes care of thena and he cooks yeah. there is two things it's the two things he does and he's quite funny his sense of humor reminds me of wong's actually yeah. that kind of sarcastic sense of humor i liked that maybe that's an indelicate comparison considering they're both asian characters but it, it, the characteristics reminded me of one it's the difficulty of not giving characters very much to do that leads them into the role of being stuck in a box i would have liked to have seen all of the characters involved into more of a discussion of the various parts of their lives and you could have had something from him to give to the group as a message, the reason I've given up my life in order to take care of Thena is because of this lesson I learned, and then the others have to learn this lesson, because they never did. They would never sacrifice their lives the way he has, but when it comes to the final scene, they realise they need to risk that and do that sacrifice, and it's his message, his words, that inspire them to do so. Maybe that is the message that first inspires Cersei, and she has to put it into words to persuade the others, even to paralyze or persuade Icarus at the last moment. So, could have been amazing. 
didn't get enough time on camera, needed more. For sure, yeah. And then Druig needed more. He held humanity in contempt, which is great. I believe that he would do so. Mm. But then him flipping around to, oh, I'm going yeah. to help put the Celestial back to sleep because I've changed my mind. Yeah, yeah. Thousands of years of built-up opinion changed overnight. Yes, he would have made a better villain that they had to persuade. It would have made sense for him to go with Icarus as well. Mm. There's a, you're the power that we need. Oh, no, it's not. It's Cersei's the power that we need now. Yeah. Could have split the team in two, actually, in that way. They raised the issue that one of them has been killed. They all come together in a big gathering. And then at the big meeting, the low point of the film that they need to recover from is the fact that they shatter into two groups. And they both try and solve the problem from their own angle. And eventually Cersei says, no, this isn't going to work. And she heals the group again. Or st- yeah, anything. Yeah. Pick a plot line, absolutely. Pick a lane and stick with it and give us that and see what it's like. One of the major criticisms this film has gotten across the board, I don't really subscribe to the whole Rotten Tomatoes, tomato meter stuff, but it is certified rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, which doesn't really mean that critics said that it was bad as such. It's more that X amount of critics rated it three stars or lower. Mm. You know, whatever. I don't really care about that because the whole aggregation side of it, I think it takes the substance out of looking at these things. But I suppose some people like aggregates, which is fine. But one of the criticisms that's lobbied against it is that the plot is too complicated, that it's too hard to follow. And I wouldn't say I found that. I followed it just fine. And I picked up on more the second time that I saw it, which you can say about any film, you get more out of it in your second viewing because you're... I guess, less blindsided by the initial experience. But I wouldn't call it densely plotted or complicated or complex. I would say it's confusing because it doesn't give you everything that you need to tell its story, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's it's overly convoluted as such. It's not complex. It's just got too many things in it such that any individual point cannot receive enough detail to make it interesting and emotive enough, which is not complexity at all. You're not sitting there trying to figure out what does that mean and how does that work? You're sitting there going, point, processed it, moving on. Point, processed it, moving on. And you, you don't engage with them. Yeah, and there's a couple of controversies, some of which we've talked about. The same-sex couple is seen as a controversy in certain parts of the world by certain people, etc. That's something that Marvel haven't really pushed before, so that's something that stands out. And there's also a love scene, which is a first for a Marvel movie. Mm. There's kind of one in Iron Man, but not really. From what I've been told, I don't spend a lot of time on social media. I will constantly talk about the fact that I do not spend any time on social media because I just don't. Because I just can't. I just can't deal with it. But people have told me that the whole love scene thing's a big deal because... There's a held belief that Marvel have decided that those things shouldn't be in films and that it's a hallmark of blockbusters as well where you just don't have characters that are attracted to each other or get together in that way and and all that stuff. And I do think there's some truth to that. When Chris and I discussed Shang-Chi, we talked about Katie and Shang-Chi and whether they had the potential to become a couple and whether there was a movement away from love stories in these films. And I think there kind of is, although sometimes I think there's a place for it and sometimes I think that there isn't. And in the case of Shang-Chi and Katie, I would quite like to see that progress to a romantic relationship. But I don't want that in all cases. And I didn't buy the Icarus-Cersei connection in this either. But I wouldn't say the fact that there's a love scene in the film stood out to me in any meaningful way, because I've seen films where those exist before. So it didn't grab me in that way. I was surprised when I found out that people were latching onto it as a big deal. 
I didn't really pick up on it, to be honest. I understood why it was there, because they were supposed to be eternal lovers from a long time back. It made sense that they would show that connection. I wasn't surprised by myself. I'm not also surprised that the internet hated it for whatever its own reasons. I don't know if they hated it as such. From what I've been told, it's more that people hate Marvel for never doing it before. Well, they've got to do it at some point. If they're going to have it in there at all, there has to be a first. It's something that you'd think, well, was there actually ever a point where you'd expect one? I can't necessarily pick a couple that I wanted to see convincing evidence of their connection. Because a lot of the couples are just meeting for the first time, if there are couples at all. And there are couples like Steve Rogers and uh, Carter, I can't remember her name, Peggy. They don't get a chance to get together because that's kind of the point. A bit of a tragedy there. Strange and Christine, they were together in the past and aren't anymore. So there's not a reason to show it. It's not in the plot. Tony and Pepper. Yeah, what is the reason? I would say this is the first time it's been a plot point. With Tony and Pepper, it wasn't a plot point. It was their relationship around his disorganisation and bad character before then that was an issue. And that's more of a relationship drama that they were having. At no point did any particular heavy plot line revolve around their deep, all-consuming love, whereas it was supposed to be in The Eternals. The reason at the end he turns away is purely because of that. Therefore, arguably, you need to see it in this film. Well, you don't need to see that, but you do need to see proof that they had a love that lasted millennia. So, arguably, I would say I didn't expect to see it before, and here it seemed to make sense. Arguably, I actually wanted to see more of their connection if you were going to make it a believable plot point rather than less. Yeah, and Chloe Zhao apparently fought for it to remain in the film as well. Well, again, I can see why, because her film is one that revolves around this love story. So I can see why she fought for it. I think I would have gone the other way. I think she needed to fight for more time on screen to make it a believable connection rather than a montage. Montage doesn't have the same emotional impact as putting it more into the plot. And I bring it up because it is seen as a big deal and I think it's worth discussing it. But for me, I found it interesting that I didn't realise it was a big deal when I saw the film. It just didn't resonate with me as being something that, oh, they've never done this in a Marvel movie before. I mean, I was aware that they've moved away from coupling characters in a lot of cases. Spider-Man, of course, a plot within the second film is him trying to tell MJ how he feels about her. Fine. He's a teenager. That's what teenagers do. But other films shy away from that. Shang-Chi, they dance around the question where he and Katie are concerned. And that's why I picked up on it when Chris and I discussed it. Because, again, it was important because it was a question that was asked within the film itself. Yeah, other films, I'm just, yeah, okay, romance isn't on this character's mind at this point in their life. Fine. It's interesting that it didn't register with me that it's not something that they bother doing very often. No, no, I didn't think about it. I was at least that far into this plot that it didn't, didn't trigger at all. Yeah, so when it happened, it's like, okay, they're in love. That's what people who are in love do. Yeah, Fine. it wasn't X-rated or anything, so yeah. No, it was about as tame as it gets. I don't imagine it could get much tamer. We've already talked a lot about some of the action sequences. There wasn't actually a lot of action in this film, and I think that might be where some of the criticism is coming from, the fact that it's more talky than your average MCU movie with more scenes of characters talking about stuff rather than punching about stuff. But there's a fair few action sequences. The London one is quite good, where it's Cersei and eventually Icarus and 
Sprite, she's there too. That was quite a good one. I think it's possibly one of the more interesting ones just because you see Sprite using her powers in an interesting way that still makes you think, why on earth have you been sent to fight these things? The best you can do is run away. But it is interesting. And then they do actually use Cersei's power as well on the bus. But again, all it's really doing is helping you run away because it's dealing with scenery. It was interesting, but it unfortunately still led me to think... Why are these people here? <laughs> she turns the concrete into like quicksand or something as well. But again, all that's good for is sort of running away. And if you're not supposed to be interfering with humans, you're not really supposed to be protecting them either. You've chosen to do that. So if you chose the power, fine. But if you're given it by your great god that wants you to defeat deviants, I'm not sure. Yeah. Then Icarus shows up and solves the problem, I suppose. Well, yeah, he actually (laughs) finds, as he's been designed to do. Yeah. He does his job. Fair enough. Yeah. We talked a bit about the Amazon sequence, quite like that as well. Especially when you had Druig mind-controlling people and getting them to fire guns and things. As we were talking about earlier, you don't get a sense of the relative scale of the powers. That's the closest you get because you see what a gun does to a deviant. It's pretty much just a nuisance very little else well i see again it sort of makes sense and you get to see the power and it's nice to see the power but again i was just sat there going why you know guns are irrelevant what you're doing you've claimed that you quite like humans but really you're just using them as cannon fodder obviously because you know that's not going to work and all of these things don't bear analysis i think if you just accept it it's nice to see the powers being used but by that point I was more interested in why, what's going on, and just saying to myself, why are you doing this with the guns? You know it's not going to work. You've had 7,000 years of experience. You know that's a waste of time. Do you really don't care about your humans at all? And if he doesn't, and if he has effectively become a cult leader, then I want to hear that story. In the fight, it's annoying for whichever reason you go with. So interesting powers, but strangely used. Feels like Eternals would have been better as a 12-episode Disney Plus series. To really dig into this. Yeah, I think so. I would agree. It's too big a concept for just one movie, I think. It's fine if you have a clear idea of what your movie is, because obviously some of the X-Men movies have large casts, but the better ones, they choose a direction and they stick with it. For example, First Class, which is the best X-Men movie, in my opinion. It's clearly focused on the Charles-Magneto friendship. Yes. And everything else kind of orbits that, and that's what makes it work. Yeah. They could have had the same here. They could have had the Cersei-Icarus rivalry and everything orbits there. And the other characters are railing against, hang on a minute, it's not just about you two, it's us as well. That could have been the same sort of thing, but also not done. Yeah. And then it's in the Amazon sequence where Cersei bizarrely manages to affect the Deviant after establishing earlier that she can't affect sentient beings in a jokey line that she says to Dane. Mm. And then she does it. And she mentions it to Fastos later in the film, and he's like, well, you should probably figure out how you did that and do it again. Or it might have been Gilgamesh, one of the two. Yeah, and it doesn't come with any character development. It's just she knows that now. Oh, no, it was Fastos because Gilgamesh died during that sequence. Yeah, and you can't even say because she's under threat, or she's been under threat before for thousands of years. So it's convenient. Yeah, it wasn't clear why it happened, because she falls in the water, the deviant falls in with her, and then suddenly it's like, boom, now he's a tree or something. Yeah, where did that come from? Is it heightened stress that enhanced your abilities? Is it, as you said earlier, where Arishim wants her to evolve? Well, there's, yeah, no, there's nothing. There's nothing. Yeah. The Unimine sequence at the end, it stands out a bit because it's a climactic Marvel action sequence that's actually on a location 
rather than on a green screen. So wind is blowing in people's faces and things. There's a more visceral quality to it because you can tell they're actually there, which is nice. And it's a bit different. So it's almost like the environmental impact plays on them. I know the big noise being made about the Mandalorian filming techniques where they have the wraparound screen so they can put real-time backgrounds, but there's still a disconnect with that because there is still no natural wind and weather and all that stuff that you have to deal with on the day, which sometimes makes or breaks a great movie. Apocalypse Now is famous for all the problems on location that were happening when they were filming, people passing out because of the heat, stuff like that. And Star Wars, famously, they couldn't get the droid stuff to not be full of sand, that kind of stuff. So sometimes those location quirks Well, make it more real, I suppose. So I definitely felt it was more present in that final sequence. And the other sequences throughout as well, the Amazon sequence, it looked like it was on location as well. So I definitely noticed it and I definitely appreciated it. Fair enough. I'm not going to challenge that. I didn't notice, but I wasn't looking out for it, I suppose. I think I don't pay as much attention to that side of things as yourself. I don't doubt that if somebody said, go back and watch it, I'd be like, oh yeah, you're right. But it's wasn't enough to grab my attention and say, this is now worth your time, I'm afraid. It was still a bunch of people get together with some glowy lights and claim they're really powerful now and using their really powerful stuff, do something that they say they couldn't do before. Okay. I mean, I believe you, but I wasn't particularly moved by it. It wasn't, oh, thank God they've got the Unimine. Now they're going to succeed with it. You know, I didn't get any of that. I don't think I can appreciate the the special effects enough to say, but I didn't mind because it looked cool. wasn't enough, I'm afraid. Fair enough. Although I do think there was probably too many moving parts in that sequence that weren't used very well, because I lost track of where people were relative to other people as they were fighting at different points. There's the bit where Icarus says, Druig's gone, as if he's killed him, and you have no reason to doubt it, and then he just shows up later and saves Cersei. Well, it's the standard thing. Just because someone's off camera and said they're dead doesn't mean anything. Because you kind of know they're coming back. Unless you actually see the body, it means nothing. So he pushed him into the ground. Well, actually, since it's already killed a couple of Eternals throughout the film, I actually felt like it was possible that he wouldn't But it wasn't on camera. No. I think when you're in your head and you're not watching... You're aware of all the tricks. And if there's not a body on camera, you know they're coming back. It's the oldest trope in the book. They're gone. Now we know they're coming back in the next scene. It would have been more surprising if he hadn't been dead. But when he turned up, it was like, yep, fine, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it was difficult to keep track of where people were and stuff like that. The holding Icarus down was pretty cool, just with all the mechanical stuff. Did me wonder why they didn't do that earlier, though. Because, again, they have lots of quite interesting powers. I said that before. They have interesting powers. And you know that they can do interesting things. So the beach fight is the one time I think you see them working together in that dedicated way that's believably a team. Why didn't you use any of this on those deviants? And if you had that much trouble with Icarus, why didn't you use this on Icarus before? When he was kicking your butts before, just do it. Couldn't get out of my head. You could almost lobby that criticism at any superhero film, really, where an ability comes out and like, well, why didn't you do this before? Yes, I do. And to me, that is something I would level at any film where it's clearly because the plot demands that we didn't. Well, well no, and then I'm not interested. You've just ruined it because the characters aren't consistent. If they are slaves to the plot force, then I'll go and write the film myself because I can use any of these tropes myself. That's what would make me a really bad screenwriter. I know the tropes. 
what I want is for somebody to turn around and say, yeah, I'm an experienced screenwriter and I know the tropes and I know how to get around them. And I think about this. I'll put some effort in beforehand to say, ah, now they could do that here and this here. And I'll use that to introduce this power, which means I need to do this. They've actually thought about it. So if I'm outside of my mind and I'm thinking about all this stuff going, well, that's great, but we should have just called the Avengers three hours ago. No. It's a big problem with Doctor Strange stuff is he's fighting another magical user. I'll use this spell. Well, I'll use this counter spell. Well, I'll use this spell that counters your counter spell. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a spell for that. I don't know what the rules are. I don't know how any of this works. Yeah, that's the problem. It will never be emotionally engaging until you know that somebody has managed to achieve something impressive because otherwise it is just lights on the screen. Yeah, so Fastos has the ability to hold Icarus down, keep his power in check. But never really establish if he has enhanced strength in the way that Superman does. He does break a table. Which is just an Ikea table. Yeah, but he also gets hurt and stuff. Only by deviance, but he still gets hurt. No, it's not established. It's left as one of conceits. You're told this is powerful, so believe it. I would have liked to have seen more gadgets, though, from Faust's. Because he did have gadgets at the end, but he just used them as... Well, it reminded me a bit of Shang-Chi, actually. He had rings that did stuff. I thought, well, that's a shame because I've seen that sort of thing be done. But this guy can build any other weird gadgets. It would be the person who would have a MacGuffin for various things or could whip one up. But that doesn't make a good fight scene because you have to be hitting each other with fists for the same reason that the Watcher and Ultron, they end up having to hit each other with fists even though they've got all the power of the universe. And because you don't understand the limits of Fasso's power, you could conjure anything in theory. He's Green Lantern, anything he can imagine he can make. Mm. And it's not clear if there's a time constraint how long it takes him to build more complex things. The only instance of you seeing him taking a bit of time to do anything is when he's trying to figure out how to make the Unimind. It's when he's puzzling it out, so he's trying different things. Which is just a one-shot thing. The Emerging Celestial, it didn't feel as urgent a problem as it should have, because I guess the collateral damage wasn't really felt. You've got this thing that's going to tear the Earth apart if it emerges, so I feel like it should have, even with how little it had sprung out, it should have had more of an impact. It was so tiny relatively speaking, was a weird thing. Because you see Arisham, his head's the size of the Earth. Yeah. But then this thing's head conveniently fits into a small building because it's just in the ocean or into a large building. It doesn't matter. It's still tiny. And I guess I expect a newborn to be small, but I kind of don't expect celestials to have to go through a baby phase where they have to learn to walk. (laughs) It feels like they should have a different growth cycle somehow and somehow be as big as one level of the planet, one core part of the planet. But it it just seems so tiny. It was never going to have its own gravity. It literally was just the size of a town, I suppose, at most. And it was never going to have a big effect at that size, but it couldn't be any bigger because otherwise how could Cersei particularly interact with it? If it had been bigger, then it would have ripped the Earth apart. There would have been gravitational issues, atmospheric issues. It wasn't even really that much of an earthquake when it appears. They weren't swept away by a massive tidal wave, which is what was advertised at the start when all the bad stuff was being foretold. So it was decidedly underwhelming. It needed to show the head in order to have some meaning. But by having to show the head on a small scale, it undermined it. But I don't think that scene could ever have been impressive because it was... Cersei runs up and lays a hand on it for a bit and concentrates for a bit. And there's not really any way you can make that stuff impressive, I don't think. 
because there's no emotional choice to it. Therefore, you need to go massive action budget, big special effect budget. But then Cersei would have been tiny. Difficult one, that. Very difficult. The only thing resembling an emotional connection was when Icarus chose not to attack her Mm. and instead chose to join the Unimind, which doesn't work because they haven't really done the work to justify that action in any way or that inaction, I suppose. No, but that, yeah, that goes back to what we were just saying. Those characters did not get the necessary development to make it impactful enough. So it's the same problem. You commit to the massive special effects budget or commit in the script to the big emotional, but you've got to pick one and really lean into it. So I don't think they did. Although I think I'm okay with different sized Celestials because I don't know if you remember back to the first Guardians movie, the bit where the collector's like, these are the Infinity Stones, and I'm going to tell you what they are, because they'll be important later. Mm. There's a clip where he talks about the Power Stone, and there's a Celestial with it and a hammer or something like that. Mm. And it's, relatively speaking, quite small. It's standing on the surface of a planet. Yeah. It's giant by anyone's standards, but by Arsham's standards, it's very small. So I don't know if there's a growth cycle or they're just different sizes, with Arsham being one of the larger ones. Whether it is or isn't, it wouldn't have changed the ending at all even if i'd have said yeah but that's perfectly fine it wouldn't have changed my thoughts on the ending yeah i'm not sure what they could have done to dial up any urgency or obviously a bigger celestial wouldn't necessarily need to be done but as you say like tidal waves or showing the impact maybe on other parts of the earth it's a good time to cut to dane see if there's an earthquake that he's about to get crushed by a bit of rubble or something i think i would have just preferred a bit more of a team thing going on this unimind to me was not a team effort I was told it was a team effort and their brains were linked by energy, but it would much rather have been, look how big it is. How do we get Cersei up there? Well, I've got a machine that will get her half the way. Well, I'm super strong and can fly. I'll get her the other half of the way. And then somebody else says, oh, I can run up the side really fast. I'll get the final third. And by some sort of team effort, they managed to get her to the head and then she can use her power. And that, that would have been more even emotive, because the whole team would have had to have worked together actually, rather than just being connected by a light show. Hmm. We discussed it after the film as well, but it's hilarious how not bothered the general public seemed to be about this emerging <laughs> celestial in the ocean. It's, oh God. That's what happens on Tuesdays. You've got to accept yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, this is just the world we live in now. It's yeah. just weird stuff happening all the time. You could get quite dark about that, actually. You could get quite fatalistic. Let's face it, we live in a universe where I might just blink out of existence tomorrow. You're yeah. grateful for every day and you make no assumptions that you're going to survive till the end of the week. So if something does come out of the ocean like that, well, yeah, I'm ready. I've had five years to emotionally adjust. Yeah, you hear about those doomsday cults that they assumed that the world was going to end in 2012 mm-hmm. and then made sure they spent all their money before that date and then it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they're destitute. Yeah, you could have people in the Marvel Universe like that at a granular level just thinking those ways. No one has a pension anymore because I could just wink out of existence tomorrow. It doesn't matter. And then there's the other doomsday cults that were right (laughs) because they did vanish. Yeah, they were raptured. No, they weren't. It was the opposite. They got the raw end of the deal. But we were still right, damn it. We still believed it and it did happen. (laughs) But yeah, the the sort of lack of reaction was something I quite enjoyed. No one knows what this thing was, but it seems to be fine now. It's all right, moving on. Yeah. There's just a giant marble statue that's in the ocean now. At the end of the day, that's all it is. There's an extra head in the ocean. Who cares? Move it on. Just a landmark now. Go and visit that next year, actually. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's quite funny. I do quite like seeing the public impact of these things. That's something I criticise in some of the shows I watch in the CW stuff, is you don't get a sense of how the city is that these heroes supposedly protect. Like, what do they think of all this that's going on? And that show, what was it called? That comedy, uh, Vanessa Hudgens was in it, Powerless? I didn't like it, but I feel like the joke was, and then they somehow managed to turn it into a series that got cancelled. The joke was, I'm on the train to work and there's a supervillain fighting a superhero. Now I'm late. That's the joke. So that kind of stuff will happen in the Marvel Universe quite frequently, I would imagine. Yeah, and you're going to be used to it. Absolutely. You'll be on the subway and then Spider-Man will ruin your day or whoever. I don't know that attacks are that frequent. If you look at it in the comics, for example, there seems to be just widespread chaos going on every other day. I think in the MCU it's a little more spread out, but it could be that you're just caught in the middle of a situation on your way to work. Yeah, absolutely. Which is what Civil War tried to be about and didn't quite manage to be. Here's the impact that you guys cause on the world around you. You need to be accountable for that. Who would hold the Eternals accountable? Nobody, I suppose. I get why, but it's interesting that no other Marvel characters show up here. You'd think it'd be something that maybe Doctor Strange would have some interest in or whoever. It's the same problem that goes all the way through it, though. They have to explain where they are and what they're doing and so on. So they were busy. I was casting a spell for Spider-Man that was going wrong. Something like that, I don't know. It depends when this is set. I have no idea when it's actually set relative to anything else. But it's funny how it says present day in one of the title cards because it technically isn't because the Marvel Cinematic Universe is currently 2023 because it went five years ahead from 2018 for Endgame. Well, actually, it's the most accurate it's ever going to be because it means that whenever you watch the film, it is the current day for whatever you think it is. If they'd have put a date in, then people have had to have done the mental arithmetic to figure out, okay, hang on, when's that again? Is Is this a flashback? So that was the right choice. Doesn't really matter, I guess. But for the context of the story, it doesn't really matter. I just like these timeline joins. MCU connections, we've discussed them kind of. There was one scene where they awkwardly discussed the rest of the universe. Who should lead the Avengers? I could do it. You'd be good at it. Whatever. I used to run around with Thor when he was a child. Now he won't return my calls because he's a big important Avenger. Awkwardly forced stuff. I think it's necessary to get that stuff in there to have your connection. You do need to know that these people have been isolated and do need it to sit in its own context. And I do need to know that they could have stepped out of line and met other people, but they chose not to, or they did choose to pick them. So I, I do want something like that in here, but it is difficult if you've got a race of people that have chosen to be isolated and stay away. But I think you would be talking about the Avengers. I've seen a reason why they wouldn't be, because some of them are involved yeah. in everyday life from watching the news. I mean, there'll be people listening to this podcast that talk about, all right, which Avenger could I be? Oh, yeah, you know, it's the old Big Bang Theory joke. We are given enough startup capital, I could be Batman. <laughs> These people have this kind of conversation so it didn't offend me that it occurred and it doesn't have to be true people can brag and say whatever they want around a table just because he said that about thor means nothing he could be <laughs> covering up the thor just ignored him for the whole time and that's what he wants to be true so it, the content of it is irrelevant i think it doesn't mean anything it's just family table chat i was okay with it i felt like i wanted it to be there they would have had a very hard time actually connecting the characters in there for the very reason that they were active when there were no superheroes and when they were superheroes these guys had gone underground so it's a tricky one to link in you have to wonder if any of them were blipped. They don't mention if any of them were. Are Eternals immune? You have to imagine not. Well, they were 
computers. So I don't see any reason why a computer would be included in the blip. A constructed AI, you could quite happily rule that Thanos didn't get rid of half of the cars and half of the computers either. Maybe there's some planets where there was a bunch of AIs just like, oh, where are my operators? We've got the place to ourselves, lads. I suppose that's a wider debate on whether the Eternals are... Well, they, they are life, right? They have feelings and agency and so on. Half of all sentient life. So if they qualify, they are, in theory, candidates. Vision is, in theory, a candidate, but he was a corpse at the time, so you never find out if he was eligible. I think it's an impossible argument, though, because we didn't get any real setup, and we don't know what their connection to Arashem is, and maybe being connected to a celestial gives you that protection. Maybe because Thanos is now an Eternal, he chose to not blip his own people. He left all the Eternals alone. Maybe they don't quite qualify, because even though the shorthand was sentient life, they really only meant but sentient life grown by biological means but that's just too big a sentence to give out when you're trying to explain it before you can your hand because you really need to be a bit snappy if you'll excuse the pun when you're talking (laughs) in a fight so you could spend the next hour arguing always and there would be a chance you're right so i assume they didn't because they would have mentioned it but how are they immune to it they could have just been immune by pure mathematical coincidence just lucky, yeah. yeah. Could have been. Or unlucky, depending on your perspective. Yeah. Would you rather be blipped or left behind? Good question. That's one for your big 200 podcast event or whatever. <laughs> Put that to the team. <laughs> Last time it was, were you blipped? This time it's, was yeah. the right way for you? <laughs> yeah, would you prefer to be blipped or would you rather just suffer for five years, mm. not knowing you were only going to say only, not knowing you were going to suffer for five years, mm. as far as you're concerned? They're not coming back. They're gone. They turn to dust before my eyes. So, yeah, it does go back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of it doesn't define what the Eternals are. They are or seem to be an artificial intelligence of sorts. But I think there's definitely organic qualities to them. Well, they're definitely sentient. That's definitely the case. But yeah, it'd be interesting to explore the implications of that because that would mean Thanos is an AI. Well, I mean, yes, that would be a consequence. But like I say, need more information, really. Yeah. And Ego was supposed to be a celestial, but there's every chance he was lying. Yeah. But back to the, we're talking about the Avengers around the dinner table thing. I didn't mind it, and I understood the idea of we need to establish this is in that universe you're watching by referencing the other things. I just found it a little bit clumsy because it was largely confined to that one scene. And like I said about the emotional, this is why I love the planet Earth reveal from Ajax, where she says they brought everyone back with the snap of a finger. I mean, that's a fact. It doesn't explain why you value that. It's a bit of a clumsy reference for the sake of a clumsy reference rather than it being in any way meaningful. comes to me, though, down to the same thing as I've said all the way through. If there was more time, you would have had more of each of these things. This got the only space it could have. It might have been better if there had been more of it spread out and so on, but no time. I think Odin was mentioned at one point as well. I'm sure Kingo mentions Odin. So the MCU references, it's in the MCU. And we get a bit of future set up. The end of the credit says the Eternals will return. We don't know in what capacity. The review scores aren't low by any means, but some have suggested that it may not get a sequel. I don't think it necessarily needs one. I think the characters are now a bit too scattered for you to do essentially an Eternals sequel. But I do think the characters can show up in other places. We do still need some resolution to the judgment stuff that's mentioned. 
Well, we need some to comment. I mean, you're right. They can have a film or they cannot have a film. They've got plenty of space to bring them into any number of other setups now. They don't even have to go Guardians. They can stay on Earth and do something with half the group. They can stay out in space. They could do a bunch of other films and do an Eternals. I mean, yeah, it's open. It's completely open. Star Fox turning up seems to suggest some kind of rescue mission is on the cards. So he says, I know where they are. And that's about it. That's all you get from him. You also get an awful CGI Pip the Troll voiced by Patton Oswalt which is quite something to behold, I suppose. Depends if you're into it. I think those people that have watched Guardians are on board with this sort of stuff already. And that's the sort of film I would expect those two characters to be in. Knowing nothing about them, they had Guardians written all over them. As soon as that first little troll turns up, it was pretty much a scene from Guardians 4 or 5 or 6 or whatever it is. So I could imagine the ship coming to pick them up and, and them doing that. I think they have to be in a Guardians or Thor 3 style comedic films they might need to separate out in order to do that because if they made Eternals 2 a pure comedy it would be weird (laughs) so potentially they've just left their options open there because they can ditch the troll if it's Eternals 2 but if it's Guardians 5 then they can just bring even more in bringing this whole family just getting drunk together yeah and it's interesting that Star Fox seems to have broken his programming that seems to be the order of the day this is the time when the eternals are rising up they've all found a race that they can fall in love with and think is worthy yeah so that's in theory an interesting setup i don't really know much about harry styles as a actor or as a singer <laughs> well you're asking the wrong person if you <laughs> for that, so. yeah, i thought i might be but i don't really know much about him so he seemed fine in this one scene I can go and ask Laura if you really want. (laughs) Is she into One Direction? She's not into One Direction at all, but she knows her celebrity gossip, so she can tell me what he's doing now and who he's married to and what he might be hoping for his career and so on. I'll put money on it. That's okay. Anybody who's interested will already know that. Anybody else can look it up. I'm not that interested. I don't know if I was surprised by Harry Styles' appearance. He's in Dunkirk, but I don't remember him in Dunkirk, so I don't know what that says about him. I guess it says that he wasn't bad. I'd remember him if he was bad. Mm. He wasn't bad here. Someone spoke to, likened it to when they used to get rock stars in films, like David Bowie in Labyrinth or Mick Jagger when he did his stint as an actor for a bit, stuff like that. It's stunt casting, but it's very measured and deliberate stunt casting. I think these days you have to prove yourself a little bit. They won't just put anybody on and hope for the best. You might not have to be the best actor ever, but I think you have to pass a certain level these days. Yeah. They wanted an instant vibe and they got it, I think. I think that was successful enough. I believe the swagger, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You know nothing (laughs) about the character because you have not read the comics. Well, you got all you needed to know from his introduction. Definitely. Yeah. In terms of other future stuff, do you think Arsham appearing in the sky will be mentioned again by anyone? As a passing comment, I imagine. Yeah. Remember that time that giant weird face appeared in the skies of various places? No? Okay. Well, until we know the stuff that's coming out of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, it might be undone. So, who knows? Maybe. I hope not. I don't like investing in plot and thinking about plot to have it be like, oh yeah, that's never happened. I despise a reset button. Another potential MCU connection that stood out to me is, well, you've got 10 Eternals. There's less than that during the Unimind sequence because some are away, some are dead. But the thing that stood out to me is Fastos makes these rings that look kind of similar to the 
10 rings from Shang-Chi. Did you make that connection or was that just me? I wonder if those rings are maybe Eternals-based tech or along those lines. And then it's the idea that Banner and Wong and Captain Marvel had no idea what they were, so it's this forgotten hidden technology type thing. Could be. I'll put my name on it. I'm probably not the only one who's done it. If you go on YouTube, you'll probably find it. It's like, there are rings and they're made and whatever. So that's that. That's all I could think of in that respect. I don't know if there is any direct connection, but it just seemed to be too similar in that way. But we'll find out, I suppose. Could be, as I was talking about Null earlier, could be the rings are signalling his arrival. I don't know. We'll find out. Okay, so I think we've about covered everything. Is there anything you had in notes that you needed to air that we didn't get a chance to? I think the only other thing I'd add in is just we've mentioned the Black Knight a bit. I probably would just have a quick mention at the end there to say of all the stuff that was in the Eternals, I think I was unfortunately most interested in the Black Knight just because it stands a chance of being a bit more personal again. The reason that sticks in my head is because the Eternals, given that it was about humanity, I thought could have been a really personal story despite the galactic scale consequences and implications. It still could have been a very personal piece and it was disappointing to me that it wasn't. But on a sort of a slightly unrelated note, then I would just say that with stuff like the Black Knight, I'm kind of hoping that it'll come down the power level again and again be a bit more personal, specifically if he does have to manage his emotions as the sword tries to dominate him and lead him in certain directions, at least. It will be a very personal story. And actually seeing that as a team up with Blade, I'm kind of interested. I don't know if I've got any expectations for that at all, because it seems kind of weird and strange, but equally, maybe in a good way, why not have that team up? Yeah, and the Dane character is a later generation version of the Black Knight character who's more heroic. The previous one, or the one I know about, I don't know if there was any in between, was a Thor villain, largely, and fought the Avengers as well. There was an early Avengers issue where he teamed up with some other villains. And I think Iron Man had the great idea of, let's swap villains. They won't be expecting that. And they did. And they weren't. So that happened. <laughs> but the villain Black Knight is Dane's uncle, which was referenced in the film. You know, where Cersei says, you should try and make amends with your uncle. You've been talking about doing that. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that. What's going on? So that's where that reference is. And it was that weird forced, this ring I bought you for your birthday has your family crest on it. And then I've got a secret about my family legacy that I didn't know before. I need to tell you. Oh, look, you've been sucked up by a giant face. Tell you later, I suppose. Again, maybe too much. I don't know enough about the Black Knight myself, but I thought I'd seen on a YouTube video that it was a choice, effectively that you might fall into darkness, but you could stay heroic. So the whole point of that hopefully would then be is it's Dane's choice in his film or Disney Plus series, whatever it is, to see which way he ends up going. And it, it could be one of those ones that plays out for a bit. He's good for a bit. Oh, he teaches on the dark side and then he comes back. And yeah, it seems to be open to some easy wins. So um, I'm, yeah, I'm interested. 
And that's what Blade's One line is alluding to, isn't it? Are you ready for this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. you're going to have to make a big choice and show some real serious willpower here. <laughs> yeah. You've not really been tested yet, so come fight some vampires. That will test you. Yeah. <laughs> and Thena refers to the Ebony Blade, which is the Black Knight's Blade mm. earlier in the film. She also talks about Excalibur. Yeah, that is one of the parts where I agree with you quite happily. I hate the Xena warrior princess principle, as I've called it, even though she won't have been the first. But I remember watching Xena as a kid, and Xena was everywhere and did everything. She was originally in Greece. Oh, what about Boudicca in Britain? Oh yeah, Xena came and gave Boudicca an inspiring speech. She wouldn't have done anything without Xena. And oh, Xena now has to go to France. <laughs> I mean, she's good, I'll give you that, but she can't have done everything. She didn't build the pyramids herself and then quickly nip over to England by time traveling to meet a different... <laughs> character from that history you don't need to have your heroes be in everything and after a while it becomes a bit annoying so i kind of don't mind if they've been responsible for a couple of things but if they've been everywhere and done everything and oh yeah king arthur was in love with me and we've got excalibur and the black knight yeah okay that's fine we were the aztecs as well by the way yeah that's good good yeah we were in russia doing their stuff oh and did you know i was a chinese emperor no don't be everything it's ridiculous. So I lost it with that point. I've no interest in seeing a romance between Thena and King Arthur. No, just please don't be in everything. I don't want to see a cameo with you in every single film forever now. Every time they flash back to some moment in the past, you've got an eternal standing in the background. Yeah, just waving. <laughs> Forrest Gump style. Like the Kennedy assassination, which Eternal was involved in that? Oh, we almost caught him. Yeah, we almost caught him. <laughs> we, we almost made it to the grassy knoll. Yeah. <laughs> or the poor taste Hiroshima scene. Yeah, that didn't go down. Yeah. Wow. It's divisive, but it's also confusing because one reading of it is that Fastos lamented the fact that he helped humanity progress to the point where they were able to develop such a thing, but he wasn't directly involved. And then it suggested that he was directly involved in the creation of the thing. The film doesn't tell you either way, but mm. there is two readings of it. Yeah. He was sort of dressed like someone that might be working on the Manhattan Project in that scene. Yeah, he was in on it. Yeah, it was the same yeah. thing. Exactly. Which means he would know Tony Stark's dad, because he worked on the Manhattan Project as well, as was mentioned. Just no, stop. No, stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, who made that shield? Oh, it was actually. <laughs> who do you think got the vibranium out of Wakanda to make Captain America's shield? The one Wakandans, how to build their staff. Oh, yeah. Who do you think knocked the meteorite out of orbit that mm. landed in Wakanda? Yeah. It was our show, it just nicked his shoulder or whatever and headed <laughs> yeah, towards Earth. Yeah. <laughs> Every event that you can think of is attributed to them in some way. Yeah, no, stop now, stop, please. <laughs> We're giving them ideas. Kevin Feige's listening. Yeah. He's like, take this down. <laughs> so anything else on your notes before we wrap up? No, that was my one. Your one? Cool. Good that we got it in. Cool. Well, thank you for joining for this extended chat about The Eternals, Marvel's latest movie. Mm. We will be back for Spider-Man. Another thing, there'll be a Hawkeye episode. There's another two MCU things before the end of the year. Jeez. <laughs> Although we'll be in the next year, probably, before we record. Spider-Man, certainly, I would think. All right. And then they've pushed stuff back as well. So Yeah, because yeah, it's out just before Christmas, which is really awkward. It's supposed to be out now, actually, originally. But mm. instead, we're left wondering if Andrew Garfield's in it. <laughs> the man's a liar, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you're crazy. 
We'll talk about it more on the news podcast, which you'll be showing up on, which may or may not be out before this. I don't know. Depends on how the timelines work. The common thread with Neil Before Pod is that our timelines never sync up. Don't have to now. Multiverse. Multiverse. It's just the multiverse of podcasts, but it's one universe. It's the one universe of podcasts. But yeah, thanks for this discussion. It's been good to tear apart this film. Mm -hmm. So what's your final thought on Eternals? You did say... I don't want to just hate on it, so I don't well, know if was, you can flip gonna, it to a positive stance. I'm going to raise that, actually. I want this stated for the record, by the way, that it was me trying to be positive about this, even though it didn't succeed at all. You, did I drag you down, or did you drag yourself down? Did you, you drag, totally your fault this time. <laughs> it's my fault. Totally you. <laughs> I'll end on the stuff I did like. I'll quickly preface by saying I just don't think there was enough time for the stuff I liked, and that I would have cut it. So you begin in the middle with the whole mystery of the death and then done all of the stuff about flashbacks in conversation. And then we would have picked up the things that I wanted to see more of that I did like, maybe get a bit more time to explain the powers which are interesting, the relationships that were hinted at but were never given enough time. I enjoyed what they were, but there wasn't enough time for them. And giving everybody the same sort of treatment that Dane and Cersei got when they were together. So I really just enjoyed seeing an emotionally grounded and capable couple who didn't just freak out because plot. They're actually quite grown up. So there was some good relationship stuff in this. There were some great characters in this, but you have trouble seeing them because none of the good stuff gets anywhere near enough time on camera. Yeah, I'm going to try and frame my final thought through a more positive lens. Mm. So there are things about the film that didn't work for me. There are questions that kept cropping up throughout that I was never invested enough to ignore, as we said earlier, or as you said earlier about the Avengers. Mm. I don't care about this plot hole because it's awesome, and that's fine. That's why I'm not really questioning it. But in this, I was constantly questioning things that they were telling me. Something would come up and I'd be like, but wait, why? Yeah. And then it would lift me out for a bit. But I did like the character stuff. I liked Cersei. And until you asked me what she did as a leader, I was convinced that her leadership arc was quite good. (laughs) Which I think it is, I suppose. I mean, she does rise to the occasion to a degree. I think she's good. Her relationship with Dane I enjoyed. The relationship with Icarus I did not enjoy. But I did like her as a character. I did engage with her. Gilgamesh was good fun. Kingo was great fun. Absolutely. His valet was great fun. <laughs> Fastos was a good character. was a very good character and had some genuinely good emotional stuff. That scene where he reads his son before he goes off to possibly never come back mm. is really moving, actually. Really well done. Yeah, so there's real nuggets of stuff that if they'd chosen that as their focus, would have made this great. Instead, I think it tries to be a lot and it stands out from other Marvel movies for that reason, but it doesn't quite hit it. But I still liked it. I still enjoyed it. When I reviewed it, I gave it three stars. And I stand by that. I think it's a solid three-star movie that has a lot of potential that never quite hits. So there we go. Is that positive enough, do you think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's a good note to end on. We'll end on a a smile, I suppose. (laughs) So yeah, thanks for joining for the discussion. It, It was good to discuss this. Okay. So that was our discussion about Marvel's Eternals. I'd like to thank YouTuber Neil Stenson for the supplied music and our in-house artist Isaac for the artwork that accompanies the podcast. Great job from him as always. 
If you like what you heard, then please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, really, it'll be in your feed. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do give us a star rating and a comment. But Aaron, how many stars would we like? I'm not getting into that again. Let's not have the rage. We promised. We wanted a nice happy ending. Well, we want five. If you want to discuss Eternals, Marvel, anything really, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us in the next Neil Before Pods.